The Reason I Resigned as an FBI Special Agent Written by Eek Peek From a fairly young age, I was always into true crime. The fascination wasn't the crime itself, but more so the people who were committing said crime. The older that I got, obviously the more knowledgeable I became, and true crime became even more intriguing. By the time my parents were hounding me about college, I had already decided what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a police officer. While I was interested in the psychology behind perpetrators, the feeling was overpowered by wanting to stop them. I wanted to save the next person from a psychopath spiral. Being just a bright-eyed kid, I wasn't expecting all of the grunt work and rookie-only assignments. They mainly consisted of getting coffee or pastries for the officers at the station. The only real police work that I got to do for the first six months was pulling people over. I know that can be dangerous in itself, but I wanted more. Honestly, I always felt bad having to write a ticket for someone who was genuinely in a hurry. I didn't feel like I was helping anyone. I never encountered someone committing a felony either, but I realize now that I was just lucky that I didn't. I pushed to be the best. I never missed a day. I covered everyone's shifts. My reports were always on time. I became an excellent shot. I took lessons from well-known behavioral analysts. Just shy of my 29th birthday, I was hired as a special agent for the FBI. I had finally reached my dream job. I was more than proud of myself and so were my parents. In the beginning, I thought I was at the highest point in my life. Nothing could ever take this away from me. I had worked hard for this position, but over time, that feeling started to fade. Taking the homicide route in the FBI, I knew every folder that my superior flung on my desk was something, well, not good. If your case ended up on my desk... That meant you were deceased and the county and state police needed our help. So you can imagine the horror that I went through for years. Countless sleepless nights trying to find some sick person. Over and over. Some worse than others, but they all stung the same. When you finally catch the sick person who committed such unspeakable acts, all that pain goes away. It's replaced by anger. And even after you hear the judge sentence them to life, sometimes it's still just not enough. I did this for over 25 years. At some point, I think I just became numb. It's almost like you have to, or you will never be able to do your job. I've worked so many cases I thought nothing could surprise me. Until that one morning... I could see my superior walking towards me with an unusually thick, beige folder. He put it on my desk and asked me to review it and return it to his office. The first thing I saw were the pictures. My stomach instantly became sour. It wasn't a body, but let's just say the once white and cream apartment had multiple splatters and puddles of crimson. 
putting the photos aside, I started to read the report. Name, Tabitha Gallo, age 18, gender female, weight 115 pounds, height 5'3", date of birth April 3rd, 1992, missing since August 15th, 2010. Tabitha was last seen leaving a party with a group of friends when she supposedly ran off due to a conflict with one of her peers. She was said to have been seen drinking and insisted someone was following her at the party. Five witnesses that we interviewed said they saw a man in his mid-late 40s repeatedly try to approach Tabitha. Each witness recalls Tabitha relaying awkward gestures to the man before walking away from him. Two witnesses recall Tabitha returning to a counter where she had left her drink. No one recalls seeing the man after Tabitha returned for her beverage. August 15th was only three days ago at the time. Not only was it highly unusual for me to receive a missing persons case, since I was a part of the homicide unit, but it had only been three days. I flipped through witness statements, interviews from said friends, and transcripts of the 911 call their mother had placed when she never returned home. It was the back of the folder that caught my surprise. In the back of the folder were pieces of a small notebook paper and plastic bags. I remember thinking it was extremely odd that they would put evidence in any folder. Attached to the plastic bags was a sticky note. Put on gloves, it read. I opened my left cabinet and pulled out a pair of latex gloves. As I put them on, a sense of dread washed over my body. I could feel myself getting pale. Inside the plastic bags were handwritten notes. Most were dirty, but some of them had blood. They were confirmed to be Tabitha's handwriting. It said they were found along the highway at gas stations. Now, this was a very rural area, so the highway in question went through multiple states. Each one of these gas stations were also very far from one another. Each letter was in order. The day after she went missing, the first note was made, dated for the 16th. It read, Please help me. I'm with a man who's hurting me. I was at a party last night and was kidnapped. Please send help. Please. The note was bloodied and the writing seemed to get more frantic towards the end. I carefully slipped the notes back into the plastic bag. I reached for the next note and pulled it out. It was dated for the 17th. It read, I'm lost and I don't know where I am anymore. I don't know what to do. He keeps giving me medicine. It's making me forget things and I can't forget. I need to keep writing. Someone will find this. Someone will help me. I'm scared. I don't want to die. Vomit filled the back of my throat, but I kept it down. I slipped the notes back into the plastic bag, and I pulled out the last note. And I admit, even after 25 years of seeing brutal attacks and deranged motives, my hands were trembling. The last note was dated for the current day, the 18th. The note was bloodier than the rest, but not torn or crumpled. It wasn't dirty either. 
It read, He's going to kill me. I know he is. I want it written down what he did to me. This part of the note was very graphic, but she explains the torture that she had endured over the last few days. It's inhuman, it's disgusting, and I won't repeat it. I want my mother and father to know how much I love them, and I'm grateful for the time God has given me. I don't want to go like this, but my body is failing. I'm sorry, I couldn't be stronger. Tears rolled down my face. A man in his mid-fifties sobbing. After I got myself back together in the bathroom, I went to see my superior. Trying to keep my normally stern composure, I entered his office. Special Agent Keynes, please take a seat. He said calmly. I walked over to the wooden chair that sat it in front of his oversized desk, and I sat down. Why are you assigning me a missing persons case? I don't deal with these sort of crimes. I asked respectfully. You've been assigned to fly out to Ohio to continue this case. The Ohio State Police found the last letter today and called us. They said it's beyond what they can do. They need our help. His posture remained still, and he sounded almost robotic. Sir, respectfully, if there is no body, there's no need for me or my unit to fly out there. This should be the Department of Missing Persons case. I said as kindly as I could. The real reason I didn't want to take it was because I knew why I didn't make it to the missing persons unit. They believe she's no longer alive based on new evidence. There's still no body, but county police found a trail of blood matching the victims. It's a lot, if you get what I'm saying. Look, you're the best homicide detective that we have. If anyone can find her body, it's you. His posture loosened, and his words started to sound like a plea. Alright, I said reluctantly. I'll pack my things. Good. Your flight leaves in two hours. Call me when you land. His posture was straight and words were stern again. Yes, sir. I replied as confidently as I could. Two hours was not a lot of time. I packed everything I needed from my desk and headed home and grabbed clothes, hygienics, and left for the airport. It was only a three-hour trip. During my flight, all I could think about was that girl. A middle-aged man scared to death of something I've done a million times. This was different, though. I was sent out to find a body and a psychopath who's also a possible murderer. I couldn't sit still the entire time. I couldn't even look out the window. Because all I could think about was if I was flying over her while she pleads for help. When I finally landed, I was greeted by Ohio State and County Police. They led me back to their station where we reviewed everything they had so far. It wasn't long before a state trooper and I headed out to take a drive along the highway where the notes were found. We stopped at each gas station, and I inspected every square inch of each one. I stayed in a hotel close to the station. 
The first night that I was there, I stayed up late reviewing the evidence and uh, statements, studying the photographs and uh, making notes. Around 4 in the morning, I started to review my notes and findings that I had written down throughout the night. I was about to finally go to sleep when I started making the connection. It was only a theory, but it was more than what the local police were doing. The following day, I returned to the station. Before anyone could offer me, well, anything, I requested to go for another drive. I asked for the same officer as the previous day, and he was happy to oblige. Small talk was made as we drove along the highway. I started to ask subtle questions. Officer to agent kind of conversation. The guard that he held up from yesterday was starting to go down and I could tell I was starting to gain his trust. I'm still not sure to this day how he didn't realize it was an interrogation. When we arrived back at the police station, I asked the captain if he would like to go for a coffee, and he agreed. I could tell he knew that I had found something. When we were out of hearing range from the others, I started to explain to him that the state trooper who took me on the ride to investigate each gas station wasn't being completely honest. It turns out, he wasn't on duty the night of the party. No one could account for his whereabouts the night of the 15th. The captain explained how the trooper had come in with different clothes the following day. He said he had spilled wine on his uniform, and it was at the cleaners. The state trooper was taken into a formal investigation room. I had the honors of doing the interrogation, most people ask for a lawyer right away. Some people talk excessively to try and sound more innocent. Some people don't talk at all. He didn't do any of those things. When I asked him about his whereabouts the night of the disappearance, he shrugged his shoulders and let out a sigh. I asked again about five more times, but each response he gave was the same. It wasn't until two hours into the investigation that I got a confession. After countless interrogation tactics with no incriminating answers, I finally just asked, Did you kill Tabitha Gallo? His glassy green eyes darted from the floor to immediate eye contact. I asked again, Did you kill Tabitha Gallo? This time, it came off unintentionally aggressive. His mouth started to form a smile, a smile that only a monster could make. Every single one of his teeth showing, it was a wide and telling smile. Before I could ask him once more, he leaned in close to my face, never breaking eye contact. He leaned in even closer and whispered, Mend, I would do it again. We never found her body and he still won't give up any information on where she is. Knowing that he's rotting away in prison doesn't help either. It still hurts. After that, I decided to leave the FBI and leave the police business behind me. How could I save anyone? If the real monsters are the same people who claim to save and protect you. I interviewed a man claiming to be God. This is the terrifying thing that he told me.
Written by T.P. Savage There's no way you're interviewing that psycho, Tracy screamed. His cult's been linked to like four murders in the last month. That's exactly why I have to do this now, I said. If I can get to him before he's arrested, and he actually shows up to the meeting, we could crack a hundred thousand views easily. I'm telling you, talking to Jim Manx could be our ticket out of obscurity. Her green eyes glinted with a mix of fear and rage. Gosh dang it, Dave. I don't care if we get a million views. Manx is dangerous. Trust me, I said. You won't have to worry about me getting hurt. I'll be taking this with me. I pulled up my shirt to reveal my holstered Glock 42. I'd gotten my concealed carry license a few months back when the conspiracy theorist I was interviewing pulled a switchblade on me. Now I never do an interview without it. I continued. If he tries anything crazy, and I don't think he will, I'll be perfectly safe. She rolled her eyes. You're such a guy. That's not what I meant by dangerous. He gets into people's heads, you know. People who talk to him for too long get changed. Now it was my turn to roll my eyes. The news had spent the past few weeks hyping Jim Manks up to be quite the manipulator. This was due to his almost supernatural ability to make seemingly normal people abandon their old lives and join his cult. Chuckling, I said, If you're worried about me getting converted, then trust me, there's no need. You would have to be crazy to believe a word out of his mouth. What about the journalist that talked to him last fall? I swallowed. The journalist that she was referring to was Trent Lowndes, a writer for a local paper who tried to interview Manx for a piece that he was doing. The reason that I say tried is because the interview ended abruptly an hour in. According to his wife, Lowndes drove home, tore the interview notes to shreds and went straight to his bedroom, refusing to talk about it. He didn't come down when his wife called him to dinner, and when she went up to check on him, she found his body. He had hung himself with a belt. The image caused a flutter of trepidation at my up-and-coming meeting with Manx, but I quickly squashed the feeling. Listen, I said. It's terrible what happened to Lowndes, it really is. But it's ridiculous to think that Manx is the reason that he did that. Then why did he do it? She fired back. She began taking items on her fingers. They had plenty of friends, a great career, and no history of poor mental health. I don't know, I said, throwing my hands up in exasperation. But you don't either. Christ, Tracy, if you're honestly buying into these nutjob conspiracies, you're just as crazy as Manx. She flinched at that, and I immediately tried to take it back. Hey, I didn't mean... Don't bother, she said sharply. Listen, I'm just saying we know why you're doing the interview, but why is he doing it? I had to admit she had a point. Manx had refused countless interview requests for months, only to randomly reach out to my obscure little podcast, and didn't add up. What if he just doesn't trust the big news outlets to hear him out? I had tried to sound confident, but the words came out like a question. Tracy didn't look convinced, turning away from me and crossing her arms. I don't know. I still don't like it.
and I hugged her from behind, resting my chin on her shoulder. Putting on my best, reassuring boyfriend voice, I said, It's only an hour-long interview. How much harm can you do in 60 minutes? I'll be fine. I hope you're right. She turned around, leaned into me, and we kissed, not knowing it would be our last time. It was about a half hour later when I pulled into the diner's dirty parking lot. Mel's was written in sloppy cursive on a sign that was slightly askew. After pushing through the smudged glass doors, I began scanning the area for any sign of Jim Manx. It didn't take long. The golden moon necklace that he always wore made him easy enough to spot. You couldn't be one of his followers without having one. The first thing that I noticed about him was the beard, scraggly enough to be a pirate's. The second thing that I noticed were his bloodshot eyes. I prayed to God it was just weed. From the articles that I had read, he could be pretty erratic when he was on crack. I gave him a single nod when I finally caught his eye. In response, he raised a skeletal arm to wave at me, wiggling his bony fingers as he did. As I slowly navigated through the sea of tables and waitresses, he never broke eye contact. After finally reaching him, I stuck out a hand for him to shake. Hi, Mr. Manx, I said, trying to sound professional as I could. Thanks again for agreeing to meet with me. He gave a thin smile and shook my hand for a little too long. Pleasure's all mine. I'm just glad to spread the good word. Manx spoke far more eloquently than I'd expected. The man's speech was stiff and a bit choppy, but it was a far cry from the slurred, incoherent ramblings that I had anticipated. I began pulling various microphones and cables out of my bag and setting them up. Sorry about being late. Uh, the traffic. He cut me off, finishing my sentence for me. The traffic on Maple Avenue was a killer. I coughed awkwardly. Yeah, that's right. A few moments later, everything was set up and I hit the record button. I always took care to flatter my guests during the intro. It makes them more willing to talk. I'm sitting here today with the leader of a revolutionary new sect of Seventh-day Adventism that's been growing steadily for the past few months. They call themselves the Children of Enoch, and they're pushing nearly 100 members as of today. If you haven't guessed by now, my guest is Jim Manx. How are you doing today? Manx gave another of his thin-lipped smiles. Very well, thank you. Well, that's great to hear. Let's start off by addressing the elephant in the room. You garnered local media attention last month when you claimed to be the reincarnated son of God. Do you still stand by that statement? Of course. His answer came out without a shred of hesitation. I probed to see how far his delusion went. So, do you believe you're immortal? No, no. You see, I've given myself human form to facilitate my sacrifice. I raised an eyebrow. Sacrifice? Yes. Just like Jesus before me, I would die at the hands of the enemy to bring peace to the world. I studied his eyes for any sign of self-awareness, but I found none. 
He looked so genuine, I firmly believed he would have passed lie detector. You talk about peace, but isn't it true you've called for war against unbelievers? He chuckled quietly. It was a harsh sound without a shred of humor. I guess your research didn't go beyond my Wikipedia page, huh? I was taken aback. Is something wrong? He leaned in closer, speaking slowly and deliberately. That is the belief of a small radical subset of my followers and not me. The news won't tell you that, though. They're too busy making me out to be some kind of monster. I leaned back in my seat and cleared my throat. And are you talking about the Trevor family murders? Damn right. They keep insisting that I'm somehow accountable for that. I tried to keep the disgust from leaking into my voice. Mr. Manx, you must know by now that the prime suspect for the crime is one of your followers. His eyes narrowed. I never forced him to do anything. I gave you humans free will, but I can't control how you use it. You called her a demon at least five different times. In one speech, you called Sharon Trevor and the rest of her family a satanic force that needed to be stopped. You didn't break eye contact. And I stand by that. She was tarnishing her reputation with her disgusting lies. I noticed my hand balled into a fist and released it. Don't you think it's rhetoric like that that causes your father is to become violent? I mean, for God's sake. Meng suddenly slammed his hands on the table, nearly giving me a heart attack. His eyes had ignited into hot embers. Don't you dare use my name in vain, boy. My hand twitched over my holstered pistol. However, instead of lunging at me with a butter knife, he took a deep breath and leaned back into his seat, straightening his dark, greasy hair. You clearly don't have faith, he said. It'll take more than words to convince you. He glanced at his watch and began studying the diner. Man, what does that mean? Do you believe in karma, David? Alarm bells sounded in my head. I had been trying not to stray too far away from the interview format. Tracy wouldn't like me giving Manx details about myself. We really should get back on topic. We can change the subject if you would like. No, I actually wouldn't like. Answer the question or I'm walking out. An image of Trent Lowndes flashed in my head, rope around his neck, toes dangling a few feet off the ground. Could letting Manx get in my head really make me end up like that? I studied Manx, his stained, button-down shirt, his tattered dress shoes, and decided I was being stupid. Lowndes was just suicidal and unstable. Tracy is just being paranoid. There isn't anything special about Jim Manx. I sighed. No, I don't really believe in karma. Bad people get off scot-free all the time. You're wrong, he said bluntly. No sins go unpunished. I smirked, not bothering to mask my low regard for him. Really, but let me guess, you can't do it when people are watching. I'd prefer not to. He said slowly, but I think I can make an exception. 
I raised an eyebrow at this. He discreetly raised a finger, pointing it at someone behind me. You see that man there? Humoring him, I turned around. He wasn't anything special, just a pudgy suburban dad type. He sat at the table on the other side of the building, talking on the phone and sipping a coffee. Yeah, I see him. What about him? Mank's eyes had become narrow and predatory, like a wolf on the hunt. He spent a day soaking up the booze from a three-day bender. Right now, he's spinning a tale to his wife about being on a business trip. Manx tapped the table once with a bony finger, and the man instantly knocked over his cup of coffee, spilling it all over his lap. As the man belted out a stream of curses, I noticed Manx mouthing the words with him perfectly. Jesus Christ, hold on, Betty. Hold on, I said. Yeah, I'll just call you back after I handle something. I was dumbstruck. There was no way Manx had just done that right. It had to have been some kind of insane coincidence. Okay, I said. Nice parlor trick, but I came here for an interview. I began unplugging my microphones. Manx sighed as if I was the one being unreasonable. Very well. How about her? A thin woman in her early 30s was walking past our table toward the bathroom. She had short blonde hair that framed sky blue eyes. Insider trading. She's made almost $10,000 from it in just under a year. His words were practically dripping with disgust. Again, he tapped the table. I watched in horror as her heel snapped without warning, sending her toppling over. She clipped her head on the corner of the table with a sickening thud and fell in a heap on the floor. People immediately swarmed around her to help, and to my relief, she shakily pushed herself to her feet, a small red streak on her forehead where she had hit her head. With the assistance of a few good Samaritans, she made her way to the door, presumably to drive to the hospital. I turned to Manx, eyes wide. You couldn't have. He just stared back at me with an expression that was almost bored. Do you still have doubts? What? Of course I do. You had to have noticed her broken heel beforehand or something. I saw the faintest hint of irritation in his eyes. Why is your heart so hard? What do you want me to do? I tried to think of a curveball that he couldn't possibly have accounted for. And then I had an idea. Okay, how about me? He seemed taken aback. What? I smiled. And go on, man. If all that wasn't just some big setup, then you should be able to do the same thing to me, no problem. For the first time since I had sat down, he looked flustered. I, I can't. Oh, really, why not? He broke my gaze. You haven't sinned. I chuckled. I thought you were our almighty lord. There's got to be some way for you to do it right. I, I mean, I guess there is. I pressed him. And what's that? He sighed heavily. I would need your explicit permission. It's usually a handshake, but... Before he had even finished speaking, I grabbed his hand and shook it. I wanted to laugh at the look of surprise on his face. There, I said. 
Now go on, God. No more excuses. Work your magic. He just looked down at his feet. I chuckled as I packed up the rest of my equipment. Crazy guy, I muttered. Throwing my bag over my shoulder, I got up from the table to leave but ran into someone. I was about to push past him, but then I noticed the jet black police uniform. Sir, are you Dave Ellington? Yeah, what's this about? Am I in trouble? The officer fidgeted with his wedding ring and looked at the ground. We should probably talk somewhere more private. There's been an accident. I took a step back. What kind of accident? What happened? He spoke quietly and slowly. We really should talk outside. It's about your girlfriend, Tracy Morgan. Tracy, what's happened to her? What's wrong? He took a deep breath. Tracy was T-boned by a drunk driver a few blocks over. My breathing began to get shallow. No, that's not true. You're wrong. I noticed Manx whispering to himself, just like he had done with the man on the phone. As the officer spoke, Manx mouthed the words with him in perfect unison. She was rushed to the hospital, but died on the way there. This can't be true, I thought. She's going to walk through the door at any moment and say everything's alright. But I knew that it wasn't true. Grief vibrated in my chest like the string of a harp. And then I saw Manx. He was sitting at his booth, smiling. In an instant, the grief ignited into red-hot rage. I raised a shaky finger at him. What the hell did you do? His eyes flashed with humor. Exactly what we had agreed on. We shook hands, remember? I squeezed my eyes shut, searching the darkness for answers. I couldn't deny it any longer. Manx wasn't human, but he sure as hell wasn't God. God doesn't revel in chaos. God isn't restricted to shady, handshake deals. And then everything snapped into place like a Rubik's Cube. It was so obvious that I couldn't believe I hadn't realized it sooner. I slowly unholstered my pistol and pointed it at him. The diner erupted into horrified screams and shouts. I was vaguely aware of the officer demanding that I lower the weapon, but I paid him no mind. I wanted to see Mank's eyes fill with fear, but he wouldn't give me the satisfaction. He just kept that same amused grin, as if I had pointed a water gun at him. I gritted my teeth and tried to find the strength to lower the gun. I almost did, but then Tracy's green eyes flashed in my mind. The gun went off once, then twice. I kept pulling the trigger even after there were no more bullets left. I dropped it and collapsed to the floor, tears streaming down my face. I sat there for a long while, sobs racking my body. And that's when I heard it. A gasp. A familiar gasp. A gasp that shouldn't have been possible. I whipped around and there she was. Tracy stood in the doorway staring down at me. My jaw hung open. But what about the crash? She looked bewildered. What crash? Oh my god, did he tell you that? I jumped to hug her, but she recoiled from my touch. I realized my skin was dotted with blood and grit. Dave, she shrieked. What did I tell you? 
What did you do? My words came out frantic and disorganized. No, you don't get it. I had to do it. He made things happen. Just by pointing. He hurt you. Or at least he was going to. I had to. I suddenly realized that I had been backing her into a corner. She was looking at me like how you might a rabid dog. Tracy gulped. Dave, you sound... The word crazy hung in the air and said, But how could have Mangs caused all those accidents? I turned back to what was left of him. Three people sat, weeping over his body. I immediately recognized one of them as the police officer from before. Upon closer inspection, I realized the two other people were the man who had spilled his coffee and the tall blonde woman who had fallen. And around all three of their necks were golden moon necklaces, just like Manx. They had been his followers the whole time. Everything Manx had shown me had been set up and planned out from the start. But why the hell would he do this? Who would orchestrate his own death like this? Manx's own words rang out in my mind. Just like Jesus before me, I will die at the hands of the enemy to bring peace to the world. I buried my head into my hands, hiding from the shame of what I had done. I had let Manx use me like a pawn. Before, he was a nobody, just some raving lunatic. But now, thanks to me, Manx would be seen as a tragic hero. And that's when I felt the red-hot sting of a taser. My body convulsed, my muscles seized. And for the second time that day, I collapsed to the floor. In the end, I was sentenced, rather unsurprisingly, to life in prison. If I'm lucky, I'll be eligible for parole sometime in 2075. During my hour of wreck time, I caught a story on the news about the children of Enoch. Manx had been claiming that he had died. Recruitment is at an all-time high. When I'm lying on my bunk, waiting for sleep to take me, I think about a lot of things. But my mind keeps wandering back to one question. Who was the real crazy one? Me or Manx? There are things that belong in the dark. Humans are not one of them. Written by Mr. Mills of 45. Our ancestors were right to be scared of the dark. Lock your doors, turn on the lights, because I... That was it. Those were my cousin Carl's last words. As much as everything in my mind and body told me not to, I uploaded the document. He wanted his story to get out there, and I wanted to respect his final wishes. That was the least I could do. Most people may call me a moron, but I believe this story... Every single word. Carl had always been a mentally stable person throughout his life. He drank here and there, but only in moderation. There was no reason to doubt he was telling the truth, even though it made my stomach churn. When I had gotten to Carl's house, his chair still had a dent in it from sitting down for an extended period of time. His laptop was open but went into sleep mode. I tried to go through his TV's history and records to find the video that he was talking about. 
but the thing had been completely fried. I'm not even sure how. He never mentioned that happening in the document. My mind was racing, trying to think of solutions. I wanted to find Carl. I held out a false hope that he might still be alive, but what could I possibly do? I wasn't equipped to deal with this supernatural stuff. For God's sake, I'm a grocery store stalker. The most insane thing I ever see is people not being able to do simple math to calculate their change. But all that meant I needed to find someone who knows what they're doing. Someone with the skills, tools, and knowledge to help find where my cousin is. If he's still alive anyway. One Friday after I finished work, I came home and immediately ransacked every little crevice and corner of the internet to find a paranormal investigator. It should have seemed easy, I know. But half the time, it was just frauds or scammers looking to make a quick buck. My entire first night consisted of downing energy drinks and caffeine to keep myself awake while I surfed the web. That is until I came across Ethan Veldor. I read through as much as I could about the guy, his arsenal, particular areas of expertise and past experience. From what I gathered, he seemed to be very well educated and proficient with handling demonic and otherworldly forces. Things such as evil spirits, demons, and vengeful ghosts who had decided to oversteer their welcome on Earth. I wanted to be as thorough as possible to make sure I was getting my money's worth. But I put my money where my mouth was and decided to give the guy a call. Hello, is this Mr. Veldor? I asked. Hey, he replied, his voice raspy as if he had just woken up. I'm guessing you're calling them for business purposes. Yeah, I need help with the problem. One that I know you can handle. Alright. He paused for a moment. What little issue have you got in your hands? The emotion in his voice was non-existent. It's a little hard to explain. Is there a way that I could send you something? It's a document. It should give you the information that you need. Okie dokie, but before we get started, I need half of the payment now. In the other half, after the problem is taken care of. That's just my policy. I became slightly frustrated with his dull responses. To me, it felt like he really didn't care too much about the actual problem at all. I couldn't blame him though. His job had to be undeniably exhausting and mentally damaging. Yeah, I guess I can do that. Do you have an email or something that I can send this document to? I continued. The rest of the call went as expected. He read off his email address and I proceeded to send over Carl's document. He told me that he would get back to me in two days or less, and to sit tight until then. Like that was going to be easy. Going to work the following day was aggravating to say the least. Not only was I dealing with my uptight supervisor and arrogant customers per usual, but I was on edge about Ethan getting back to me, which only amplified the irritation I usually experienced. I tried to keep my head up to the best of my ability. Hey Ryan, do you mind going into the back? We just got a shipment from the warehouse and the candy aisle needs to be restocked. My supervisor asked, 
staring down at his clipboard, which was clearly only meant for show. Uh, yeah, sure, just one second. I replied as I finished stocking the current shelf I was working on. Also, he turned and stopped just before walking away. I need you to stay late tonight. It's getting close to Halloween and we've been really busy the past week. If there was a way to describe how much I was internally sighing and complaining, I would have gone on and on. But I just kept my mouth shut for obvious reasons and made my way to the back of the store. My supervisor wasn't lying. I could see tons of people doing last minute shopping for Halloween candy. Some of them being small children who didn't want to wait to trick or treat. I opened the doors to the back and was immediately hit with a blast of cold air. It was always kept at a lower temperature to preserve the quality of things like ice cream and milk. A moderate amount of flickering accompanied me as I looked around. We had needed to get some of the ceiling tiles in the back replaced for some time now. They were constantly flickering on and off for the past few weeks at this point. I slowly walked towards the south end of the back between the tall shelves. I could see an alarming amount of rust beginning to form on the metal subordinates. On my way to the end, I saw a sight that froze me right in my place. I tensed up, having absolutely no idea what to do with the unsettling image in front of me. Less than ten feet away from me stood a man. That's what it looked like anyway. He was a disturbing pitch black and shadowy in his appearance. I couldn't make out any facial features save for a pair of glowing crimson dots, where his eyes should have been. But his shape and general build was similar to someone I had seen before. I just couldn't put my finger on it. The figure stood in the dark corners of the back where the ceiling lights flickered the most, blending into the poorly lit area. You dare hunt us. Mid spoke with such force I thought the room might have shook. The thing even sounded far more demonic than it looked. Its voice reverberated and echoed as if he had a microphone resting in his esophagus. Adrenaline flowed through my veins, but yet I stayed still. I was too stiff to move a muscle or make a sound. My mind was completely blank. Your efforts are in vain. The shadowy figure began to cackle in an unsettling taunt towards me. Despite there being no movement of its mouth, or any of its body for that matter, what, what are you? What do you want? I managed to get out, failing miserably to mask the tension in my voice. The lights began to flicker even more intensely. The room was slowly fading into darkness as I stood there in unexplainable panic. I tried to pull my phone out to record the insane events as soon as the screen lit up. The numbers on the digital clock on my phone were constantly scrambling and changing. It looked like a slot machine of a casino. I wasn't even able to put in the passcode. You can run and hide. We will always find you. Always. The figure continued on. This is not your hour, Ryan. I turned to run out of the back. I shoved my phone back into my pocket and practically launched myself through the doors to return to the main space of the store, desperate to get away from that thing. I looked back through the circular window of the doors once I was on the other side. The red-eyed, shadow man had disappeared and the lights were no longer flickering. They were working just fine. 
figures by heart. Are you okay? Came a female voice to my left. I turned to see my coworker Sherry looking at me with great concern. I was in a hunched over position with my eyes as wide as possible. Her reaction to my seemingly odd behavior was justified. There was multiple seconds of awkward silence between the two of us as I decided how to respond. Yeah, just almost tripped over. I lied, not wanting to drag Sherry down into my web of confusing nonsense. Uh, okay, right. She responded with a dry expression. Well, I was coming back here to grab some more stuff to restock the home care aisle. I didn't mean to spook you or anything. You didn't, it's okay, I replied, straightening my posture. I won't lie to you all. I had always found a Sherry rather attractive. She dyed her hair a beautiful light red. Her skin was as flawless as polished marble. Her eyes sparkled like emeralds and she always had been fun to work with. By far my favorite co-worker out of anyone. Sherry had always been much more down to earth than her appearance would lead you to believe. I had been putting off pursuing any sort of romantic relationship with her. I wasn't usually a fan of getting together with people that I worked with. But lately, she had begun to change my mind. Fear of rejection had gotten in my way of ever officially doing anything other than casual flirtation. Well, I'm glad. Sherry chuckled. We've got our lunch soon, so if you want to meet me in the break room, that would be great. She punctuated her sentence by flashing me a friendly smile. Before I could respond to her proposal, I felt my phone begin to vibrate aggressively in my front pocket. I took it out with a hop of hesitation. It seemed to be strangely working once again. Full display on the screen was the phone number of Ethan Veldor, the paranormal investigator. Yeah, definitely. I gotta take this real quick, I'm sorry. I said as I held up a finger and slowly turned the corner. Taking multiple glances around to make sure I was alone with no one around. Hello? I picked up. Greetings, Ryan. Ethan responded, his usual monotony being present again. Greetings? Who says greetings over the phone? Uh, you know what, never mind. Did you find anything? I need you to meet with me tomorrow. He responded without answering the question. I'll send the address. Whoa, whoa, hold on. Did you find anything? I persisted. Ethan hung up, refusing to answer my question. I hit my fist against the wall in anger before realizing he probably had info if he wanted to meet up in the first place. A customer had walked by at that moment and shot me a look of disappointment, as if they were my boss. The rest of work that day went by as slow as possible after that call, but the highlight was having lunch with Sherry in the break room. It helped to lighten my spirits. But that didn't mean I couldn't get the incident of what happened in the back room off my mind. You've been okay? She asked before taking a bite of her vegan burger. First, you were scared like crazy, and now you're all spaced out. It's just been a really stressful week. Carl is still missing. I moaned, slouching back in my chair. I saw that in the news. Sherry glanced at me sympathetically. I'm really sorry. If you need a friend to talk to, I'm here. 
There was a pause before I spoke. I fixed my posture and sat up straight in my chair, making sure to look Sherry directly in the eyes. I appreciate it. Uh, listen, there's something I've been meaning to. I was quickly cut off by our supervisor storming in, a neglectful expression on his face. He was in his usual authoritarian delusion, always walking around like a tough guy despite being the shortest person in the entire staff. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but break's over, guys. Time to get back to work. Yeah, sorry, I thought. Because everyone believes that when you use it as an excuse for the millionth time. When work had finally finished up and I went home, I stayed up all night, mindlessly scrolling through Netflix as I desperately tried to get some sleep. I felt the fatigue behind my eyeballs, yet they refused to close and let me drift off into unconsciousness. I did end up falling asleep that night, but for less than two hours. It was a struggle to just climb out of bed that morning and get ready to go meet up with Ethan. But the morning light shining through my windows helped give me the last bit of motivation that I needed. One thing that always puzzled me about Carl was why he enjoyed the night so much. His late night walks were a far cry from what I would have done. He always seemed so excited to do it. I never understood why. The location Ethan had given me to meet him at was surprisingly a library of all places. Call me naive, but it seemed a little too normal for someone like him and his so far cryptic tendencies. Speaking of which, it was a pain to find him in there. I scanned up and down the interior several times with no luck. In my mind, he should have stood out. I guess not. Where the hell are you? I whispered out loud to myself darting my head around like a crazed pigeon. I was caught off guard when my phone began vibrating for me, receiving two text messages. I retrieved it out of my pocket and took a glance to find both of them were from Ethan. Behind you, the first one read, You need glasses or something. I did a 180. There Ethan sat between two of the non-fiction bookshelves with his face buried in a novel about the history of supernatural sightings and folklore. I casually went up to him, putting up a front of false courtesy. You're Ethan Veldor? I asked. It's good to finally see you up close. Sure, came his dry response. Sit down, I've got something to tell you. I hesitantly sat in the beanbag directly parallel, a look of eager anticipation all over me. What is it? I've been waiting all night for this. I interrogated. These nocturnals, they're nothing like I've ever encountered. It's been a pain in my behind to learn anything about them. I've only been able to gather less than half a page worth of information. The rasp of his voice boomed across the library for a man speaking so quietly. Aren't they just like ghosts? Ethan snickered the closest sound to a full-on laugh that I had ever heard him produce. No, not even close. I even tried getting ectoplasm from them. Nothing. The typical baits, traps, and everything are useless. They don't bite. In Carl's document, he said something about them needing to be in some sort of darkness. Well, that's true. But one of the few things I did find out is that when they have their sights set on someone... 
the darkness becomes less and less of a prerequisite for them. And right now, they've got their eye on you. I gripped the arms of my chair as he said it. I couldn't help but feel as if all the fluids in my body ceased to flowing. One of them, I saw one of them at work yesterday. I could tell by how shook up on the phone you sounded. How do we kill them? Kill them? Ethan scoffed. You don't. You can't. We just need to find a way to... Wait a minute. He paused, standing up from his chair and beginning to scan the area of the room behind me with a moderately paranoid expression. What? What are you looking for? The light in the back left. It's flickering. He hopped while reaching into his jacket for something. It wasn't until now that I noticed a sizable imprint in his jacket. I stood up and placed myself in front of him, attempting to diffuse his angst and not draw attention in our direction. Would you chill out? I whispered. People are going to think you're nuts. No, they aren't. Have a look for yourself. I hesitantly turned my head. The library was just the same as it had been minutes prior, but every single person was frozen with the exception of Ethan and I. It was like they had all been stopped in time. None of them even blinked. They were complete statues. Don't move, Ethan demanded, reaching into his jacket and pulling out an almost alien-looking weapon. I had rationalized it as being just a heavily modified shotgun with red rings around the barrel and some sort of cylinder containing a strange purple liquid hanging from the bottom. The light in the back Ethan had talked about flickering was beginning to spread to the rest of them. They all hummed and buzzed violently as they flashed in and out simultaneously. Now the whole interior was starting to become an epileptic person's worst nightmare. And the flickering of the lights made me come to a horrifying realization. I could feel my stomach churning. Are they here? I asked as I darted my eyes frantically around the room. Holding on hope that now frozen people would start moving once again. What do you think? Ethan replied rhetorically without even looking back. Just try not to crap yourself. Last thing you want to do is let them know that you're scared. Yeah, because I'm sure they don't know that already. I clap back. Aren't you supposed to be the professional here? The lights now all flickered at the same time. The bookshelves began to shake as the floor now rattled. Books fell off the shelves and the chairs were tipped over. I could feel the air become icy cold, as the eerie hum of the ceiling lights only became louder. You need to get out of here, Ethan demanded putting a hand to my shoulder and trying to force me out of my spot. How? We're trapped. My best chance is here with you. I said go, Ethan snarled. The lights flickering came to a climax when it became too intense and they exploded. Shards of glass and plastic fell to the carpeted floor while the darkness flooded the room as a result. The light coming from the windows was covered with a sheet of powerful darkness. The opposite half of the room was completely drenched in a pitch-black abyss. Even Ethan seemed to not know what was going on. I was terrified. I could feel my hands shaking intensely. In the dark half of the room, eight different pairs of red glowing dots stared fixed on us. I couldn't take my eyes off them, not even for a second. 
They didn't move, make a sound, or speak. They simply continued to glare hungrily at us. I looked down at the floor and nearly screamed. As I saw the darkness itself moving, it freaking moved, slithering across the floor as if it were given a body. I attempted to speak and scream, but no noise came out. My throat was closed up from the undeniable panic I was feeling. I thought I was going to die there and then. Stay back, Ethan commanded as the darkness continued moving its way towards him while he tried to fire his weapon, only for nothing to happen. He tried a couple more times to be faced with the same result. I had felt stupid for relying on him in the first place up to this point. What? What the hell? He cursed. Haunting laughter came from the darkness. It was a combination of multiple bone-chilling cackles. They were sinisterly taunting. Some laughs being children, some being men, and some were women. The red dots slowly hovered forward through the dark, getting increasingly closer to Ethan and I as the pitch black, almost liquid-like darkness swallowed up the rest of the room. It was closing in on the both of us. All we could do was watch and listen. Ethan attempted to fire the weapon one last time, and just like the previous efforts, nothing ended up happening. The only difference was that I was seeing a look of panic beginning to spread across his face. It only made my blood freeze even colder. Everything I knew about him so far told me that he wouldn't be afraid of anything. I thought you could handle this. I shoved him, anger now coinciding with my terror. The void of darkness was now beginning to touch my feet. The volume of the horrific laughter increased as the glowing red eyes were now less than 10 feet away. It felt like this would be the end. I wanted to simply drop to my knees and give up as a horrible death slowly advanced towards us. I felt helpless in a way I couldn't put into words. Ethan was the first to go. The darkness pulled around his feet. He lifted me with nothing but despair and desperation in his eyes as he was suddenly snatched right in front of me. He didn't have time to scream. Not at first, at least. Once he had been consumed and pulled out of sight by the darkness, his screams were ear-shattering. I couldn't hear any sounds of him being maimed or harmed, but it was hard to distinguish these shrieks as being a result of paralyzing terror or pure agony. I chose the former. Two pairs of the red eyes now stepped in place of where he once stood. His blood-curdling screams were suddenly and violently cut off after continuing for over 20 seconds. All I could think about was the potential horrific things they had done to him, along with the fact that I would very soon be next. The darkness had now reached me. It began to surround me, consume me, and I was left with nowhere to go. I was sure that this would be my haunting demise getting taken by these red-eyed shadow beings, the same as my cousin once had. I was fully surrounded by the darkness and I felt something grab me. It was hard to describe, but whatever snatched me up felt like it was all around me, everywhere at once. The grip of it was cold, similar to that of sleeping outside nude during a blizzard. I began to scream as I could feel the chilling sensation run its way through the inside of my body. Nothing but skin-numbing cold was all I could sense. I continued my shrieks as it kept spreading, 
The process was slow, agonizing in a manner no torture could ever compare to. I was miraculously lucky I was even able to open my eyes for a split second. All around me, I saw the nocturnals. Their figures were still pitch black and details completely obscured. But their eyes were now white instead of red, and it hurt me to look at them. I covered my eyes as I continued bellowing my lungs out to my chest. Assimilation. The voices of the nocturnals chanted as they all surrounded me. Over and over again as the feeling of that same overwhelming chill spreading through my veins finally came to a merciful end. It was only seconds after when I had passed out. When I awoke, I took a deep breath. I was in my room and the lights were off and everything was eerily silent. Morning light was leaking through my curtains but they were shut. The main thing racing through my mind was how I even woke up in the first place and how long I was out. Why was I even still alive? I should have been freaking out much more than I was. That's what I thought anyway. I exited my bedroom and marched down to my bathroom. The light was already on, which irritated the morning grog on my eyes. I quickly switched the light off, only letting a small amount of it seep in through the window. I looked in the mirror to see that I was completely unscathed, save for my crimson bloodshot eyes and a few bruises on my forearms. I had wondered if the same had happened to Ethan. I pulled out my phone and attempted to call him, only for it to go to voicemail several times. That was when I was going to try to call the police and file a missing persons report. Right before noticing the time and immediately spiraling into a shallow pool of stress. It was only minuscule compared to what I felt when the situation usually occurred. Crap, I said. I gotta go to work. When I spoke, my voice was enhanced. Amplified, whatever you would call it. I said a couple more words and phrases just to make sure what I was hearing was real. Every little noise or verbal outburst I created had echoed throughout the walls of my house. I did everything in my power to chalk it up to my mind and senses being distorted from what had taken place. It was still fresh in my mind. Yet even though I couldn't stop replaying it to my head, I didn't feel as strongly as I should have. As mentioned before, I grabbed my shoes and got on my car before hesitantly driving to work. Stepping outside was harsh. It didn't burn exactly, but it caused me moderate internal irritation. I felt out of place from the moment I woke up. Seeing Sherry at work didn't change a thing. I didn't care much for her presence. Every word that came out of her mouth was over my head. I paid her next to no attention. That is until she uttered the words, Ryan, why are your eyes so red? In my mind, I thought her question was trivial and maddening. I turned and simply looked at her without saying a word. I just stared into her eyes as I reached over one of the shelves. Hello, she persisted. Ryan, are you okay? Once again, I ignored her. I went about the rest of my shift, half-assing nearly everything I did. I couldn't wait to get home, turn off the lights and relax. The store wasn't even busy by an average day's standards. Nonetheless, I was beyond exhausted. 
Arriving home that evening, strange feelings and emotions rose inside me as nighttime approached. The light was seriously starting to hurt my eyes. I really needed to dim it. I'm going to finish writing this now. The light from the screen on my laptop is slowly becoming a burning sensation and I can't take it anymore. I don't want to look at the screen for a second longer. But tonight, I'm going to pay Sherry a visit. These voices, they've been encouraging me to do so. One of them even sounded like Carl. Just like him. But distorted like me. I kind of like it that way now. It's soothing. The dark isn't so bad, you know. Maybe everyone should take the time to shut their lamps off and find the peace that doesn't exist with the light. The light is overrated. I'm a college student studying astronomy. I accidentally found out what's in our universe. Written by Ngobi. Space. An endless scape, void of anything except for the occasional mixture of hydrogen and helium held together by gravity. Every so often, you get a clump of rocks that get caught in the gravity, and they start to move in circles around it because that's just how it works. And every so often out of that, one of those clumps of rocks pointlessly rotating around a mixture of gases it's caught in the right place where water can liquefy. And because of laws and science or whatever other stuff, life occurs. I rolled my eyes, preparing for another one of my friend Austin's passionate rants about how arbitrary the concept of life is. Yeah, I replied. Thanks for explaining to me how we're all here. Can I go now? I've got class early tomorrow. No, no, no. Just listen to me, man. What is stopping the idea that life can exist in other forms? Being adapted to live in any conditions. I mean, we've seen it with tardigrade. It can survive the vacuum of space. Who is saying being similar to that nature and maybe even intelligent aren't out there somewhere? Laws that humans who don't know everything have deemed fact. Answer me that. You sound ridiculous, dude, I said, slinging my backpack over my shoulder and exiting the lab. You know I'm right. Austin called out behind me as I walked away. Nah, sorry, I should probably introduce myself. My name's Carter. I'm a 22-year-old college senior, and for the last four years I've been studying astronomy. Something about space, the unknown... So much to explore and learn. It's always intrigued me. I mean, think about it. We are a tiny blue island in the middle of a massive void. And we don't even know how big it is. Of course, all of this was how I felt before I found out what I know. But we'll get to that in due time. I met Austin during freshman year. When I was looking for roommates, I put that I would prefer someone who was also an astronomy major, and he ended up being my roommate. We became best friends very quickly. Countless late night talks about the universe and what may be in it. With a mutual passion, we both loved staying out late, 
and looking at planets and stars through our telescope. We also loved staying late at the lab and doing research. Call us nerds, but we loved it. Over the past few months, though, Austin had begun to get obsessed. He started talking about a new energy wave he had discovered. Apparently, if done right, it could be used for travel across the universe in seconds. Opening up wormholes is how he described it. He was convinced that other forms of life had surely discovered this method previously, and if he could tap into it, we could hopefully contact these life forms. It began to get odd. He would spend late nights at the lab, barely sleeping. He had bags under his eyes, messy hair, empty Red Bull cans always within an arm's reach of him. I just need to be able to find where it's coming from, he would always say. How do you even know this energy wave even exists? How did you find it? I asked him one day. It's too hard to explain to you now, but you have to believe me. Trust me, it's there. I will prove to you that there is life out there in the universe, and it's causing it. I will find it, he replied. I rolled my eyes and left him to his pointless tinkering. I was beginning to lose my friend. He had gone mad. It was sad, but at the same time, I couldn't let it put a stop to my life. I had to quit worrying about him, and just hope that one day he would come to his senses and give it up. Last week, however, at 2am, I received a call. It was from Austin. I answered it, wiping the tiredness from my eyes. Uh, hello? I asked into the phone. Get over here now, dude. I did it. I found a way to detect it. I can prove it to you. Get over here now. He yelled ecstatically. What up? Okay, I'm on my way. I'll be there in ten minutes. I replied, throwing my clothes on and rushing to my car. On the drive over there, I wasn't even sure what to think. Had he really done what he had been trying to do? Had all of this madness not been madness after all? I was still very skeptical, but the thoughts itched in the back of my mind. I pulled into the parking lot of the lab and called Austin. I'm here, where are you? I asked. Okay, great, I'm coming to let you in. A few seconds later, I saw Austin shove the door open and wave at me to come inside. I got out of my car and started walking up to him. Hurry up, man. You need to see this. I did it. He yelled. Shh, keep your voice down, I said. I don't want campus police pulling up on us. I'm pretty sure we're not even supposed to be here. We got inside and once the door closed, I finally asked. Now what exactly did you do? He was vibrating with excitement. You know that energy wave I've been trying to find? Trace to its source discover life. Well, I found a way to do it. I found a way to trace it back. I was puzzled. What? How? I replied. I'll show you. Follow me. We rushed downstairs to the lab and when I walked through the door, the biggest contraption I'd ever seen was filling the entire room. 
It was a massive glass tube encircling the perimeter of the room, and in the center was a laptop hooked up to a massive computer. What the hell is this? I asked. This, this my friend is what I've been keeping secret for so long. I've made my very own particle accelerator. I've been keeping it a secret because I know if you or any of my professors found out, they would force me to stop. But I've done it. How it works is I have a bending magnet on one end, and at the other end is a focusing magnet. When the electricity is flipped on, the atoms begin to hurl towards each other and collide with each other. Not bad physics for an astronomy major, right? I was astonished. How had he done all of this? Where had he assembled it? How did he get it in the lab? This was ridiculous and none of it made sense. And he was right. He was an astronomy major. Where did he learn all of the highly advanced physics needed to even think of something like this? It was quite easy, really. I did some research and learned all you needed is an electric field and magnets to focus those fields. Um, was all I could get out. I had so many questions, but I was too dumbfounded to ask them. The only one that I got out was, why? He smirked. Well, this is where a little luck comes into play. You know the theory of the Higgs boson, right? Well, this new energy wave is in the Higgs field. What we do is we throw the particles at each other. When they collide, we only have a small window to completely shut off the contraption. What this will do is interrupt the collision. And if the Higgs boson is formed, it will transcend it into a lower energy state. When one Higgs boson does this, it causes a reaction with other Higgs bosons possibly created. This is that energy that I've been trying to prove. The Higgs boson is what gives mass to everything, right? So, when transcended into a lower energy state, it takes away the mass. What I've been trying to prove has literally been anti-mass in a sense. My head was swirling with one million thoughts a second. Anti-mass? Higgs bosons? What? How the hell had he figured all this out? He continued... I know I proved it because I've done it once. I tested it myself and it worked. Only for a split second though. I couldn't see anything. But I'm telling you, something's out there causing this. I just know it. And I'm going to find out what it is. We aren't the only ones in the universe. And surely some other life form has discovered this. I know it. And if I can just do it right... I'll be able to contact them. Are you with me? He asked. I... I don't know what to say, man. This is all insane. What exactly do you plan to do, even if you are right? I just need to know that I'm not insane. Now again, are you with me? He asked. I shook my head. I guess. What exactly do we have to do? He immediately went to the laptop. He started typing in a few things and then looked at me. When I press this button, the particle accelerator is going to turn on and we're going to count up to 10. Right at 10 seconds, I want you to go to the wall over there and unplug the two power cords you see in there, okay? 
tell me right before you do it, and I will halt the acceleration at the same time. This could cause the reaction that I'm looking for. What happens after that? I guess we'll have to find out. Are you ready? No, I said. Austin laughed. Neither am I, he said. But let's do this. I walked over to the power cord and waited for him to start it up. He pressed a button. The accelerator started up. A small humming noise could be heard throughout the room. It actually worked. I was amazed. He wasn't kidding. Right at that moment, he started counting down from ten. I began to get ready. Three, two, one. I pulled the cords out as hard as I could, and right as I did, I saw Austin slam the keyboard on the laptop. In a split second, the power shut off, and the glass tube circling the room shattered. A portal ripped open and began shaking the room violently. It was swirling around the edges, and paper was flying everywhere. I tried my best to see what was on the other side, but shattered glass and paper were flying all over the room, and I had to cover my face. I could see stars. Space, I thought. Through muffled vision and loud, chaotic noise, I heard Austin scream, Austin, are you okay? I yelled, but got no reply. And then I began to see a massive hand the size of the room itself extend out from the portal. It was no human hand, far too gargantuan and jet black. Each finger was the size of me. I saw it slowly come through the portal and wrap itself around Austin. Austin was crying out in fear. I watched as it slowly pulled him back into the portal and closed it behind him. The last thing I heard was Austin screaming, but his screams were being drowned out by the void of space screaming back. The portal swirled violently until it abruptly disappeared. I was left there alone, the room in shambles and the power out. I was hyperventilating. I frantically looked around the room, hoping to see Austin praying that the entire thing was a hallucination. I then began to hear sirens outside. That was last week. I was questioned by the police and I could barely even tell them what had happened. They walked in and saw the room in shambles and me sitting there in a panicked mess. I was of course arrested and I'm now facing obstruction of property charges and mentally ill since the story I told them was obviously very unbelievable. I was expelled and now have to pay back the damage done to the lab. I'm typing this out now because no one believes me, and I'm hoping that you all on here will. I've tried to explain it to my parents, but they just shake their heads in disappointment. The only thing no one can seem to explain, though, is the disappearance of Austin. The police started an investigation, and of course, I am their primary suspect. Austin died trying to prove what he believed in. I thought he was crazy, but in reality, he was right. I know what happened to him. 
he was taken by whatever that thing on the other side of the portal was. I never saw its face, but I know Austin did. The brief moments I was able to catch a glance of him, he was wearing the most horrified face that I had ever seen on a person. I'm not sure how I will mentally recover from all of this. All I can say is that after my encounter, I now know there are things in the universe that are simply meant to be left alone. If humanity goes on knocking on doors, it shouldn't be. How long until something knocks back? I've seen what exists in our universe. It took my friend. There are things we don't understand and weren't meant to understand. Maybe it should stay that way. On my 15th birthday, I got a list of rules to follow until I turned 20. Written by Insomniac Writer Before I get into the situation that I'm in now, I guess you probably need some backstory so you understand what's happening. So let me take you back to when I turned 15, when this all started. Big day tomorrow, huh buddy? Said my dad while taking a sip of his hot morning coffee. Well, not really. I'm just turning 15, not 18, dad. I said with a chuckle. Well, you are right. But don't forget about it, said dad, this time giving me a cold glare. This was unusual of him since he is usually a very warm person. Right, I said, my smile now fading. Now you probably think, what does it mean? Well, this has been going on for more generations than my dad could count. When a male in this family turns 15, they are given a list of rules that they need to follow until they turn 20. Why at 15 and only till 20? I don't know, but it is definitely weird. Also, I don't know what happens if you break one of the rules, since nobody from my bloodline did before. But soon enough, I'll find out since, well, today, I broke one of the rules. After three years of following them, I broke one and after I broke it, strange stuff began to happen. This event is already one week old, but lately, it's getting worse. So I'm writing this as something to be remembered by, in case anything happens to me. Well, kiddo, you should be getting ready for school since the bus is almost here. Dad was now so concentrated on looking at me, like he wanted to remember my every detail, that he had accidentally spilled his coffee when he tried to grab the cup. Is everything alright? I said. You sound a little worried. Yeah, it's fine. I'll clean this up before your mom gets home. You know how she is, he said, already reaching for the mop. And also, I need to talk to you about it when you get home. Alright, well, I'll be on my way, I said as I headed for the door. That day, we had a science project to do, an erupting volcano that I aced, of course, with the help of my dad. But the rest of the day was pretty boring and tiring. I didn't get any homework, luckily, since the teachers felt good today. When I got home at 2pm, I went straight to the kitchen. I was hungry, and I cooked myself some fries with eggs, of course. 
I overcooked the fries a little bit, but I was still getting the gist of cooking. After I ate, I went to my room and watched a few movies and played some games on my console. And then evening rolled around. I heard my dad knocking on the door. You got any spare time, buddy? I asked my dad in his usual warm voice, but there was little worry in his tone. Yeah, dad, you can come in. I said, knowing what he wanted to talk about. You should clean this place a little. He suggested as he took a quick look around. Yeah, you're not wrong. I said with a chuckle. Let me guess. It. It, said my dad, now looking more serious than I ever saw him. In general, he was a pretty laid-back dude. Well, tell me then. You know all about the history of the list, correct? I think so, I said doubtfully. Even about the one who cursed us with it and why, right? Said my dad, with an eyebrow raised. Um, I don't know the reason or the person who was behind all of this. Right, said my dad, beginning the great history. Back in the 1500s or something like that, I can't remember the exact date, but it was around that time. A member of the family that we were related to was a well-known thief. He was known to steal everything he could get his hands on. Jewelry, food, clothes. And he would get away with it since he was just 15. Very agile and with good stamina. Well, this thief messed up big time one day. Come on, Dad, this sounds like a bedtime story. I spoke with a wide smile, almost a laughter. Let me finish, kiddo, said my dad, now becoming a little angry that I wasn't taking this seriously. Oh, right, sorry, Dad. As I was saying, he messed up. He found out that in the woods nearby lived an old lady, who just wanted quiet time to herself, away from all the noise in the town. She had an excessive amount of jewelry in her house for some reason. He knew this and decided to rob her in the nighttime following the next day. The next day came and day turned to night. And he striked. In a hurry, he took everything that he could carry. Gold and iron rings with small diamonds on top. Gold bracelets and necklaces and everything. And ran away undetected. Or so he thought. The next day came around and he went through town proudly, telling his buddies what he had done on the previous night. His buddies froze as they heard everything. Dude, you messed up. Yeah man, you're dead. What are you guys talking about? It's just an old lady, what can she possibly do, walk after me? Said the thief, laughing hysterically. That lady, you imbecile, is a witch. And what you stole was a private collection, some of them crafted by herself. That old lady, a witch? You guys gotta be kidding me. That grandma can barely walk. There's no way she's a witch. Sleep with one eye open, friend. Sleep with one eye open, said one of his buddies, starting to walk away with the others. Yeah, right, whatever. And he went on his way to sell these stolen goods to a guy that he knew. Dad, how do you know the exact dialogue if it happened hundreds of years ago? 
I asked him, still convinced that he was just trying to scare me. Well, it has been passed down from generation to generation and finally to us. There's no way that I would know it since so many members of this family said the same thing. Now may I? Yeah, sorry, sure, go on. I was now skeptical about this being fake or not. When he reached his so-called contact, he also asked him from where he got all this gold and jewelry, since it was the 1500s and it was extremely rare to even get a ring. When he told the guy the story, his face went pale. He immediately told him to get out of his shop and to never come back. Gosh, fine man, I'll leave, but it's your loss. The only thing I'm losing is a stupid customer, said the shopkeeper while throwing his fist up in angry fashion. The boy went home. His parents were still away trying to sell apples, tomatoes, and other fruits and vegetables and bread to make a penny so that they could live another day. So he hid his treasures under the bed. It was at 10 p.m. and he was tired from all the running around and decided to go to bed. That was the last day that he was ever seen again. When the next day came, he was not in his bed. The underside of his bed was empty as well. His parents were devastated. They had also learned that the shopkeeper went missing along with all of his friends that he came in contact with that day. The parents found out from a friend of his friends that he stole from the old witch and immediately stopped looking for him since they knew what she could do and will do if she's disturbed. They mourned their son's death until they died. Nobody knows what went down that night, but ever since that day, all the male children from every generation have received a list of rules at 15. Some said that that's her way of making sure that the kids are responsible. Others say it's her way of revenge. Nobody knows. But why do only male children get the rules? I asked my dad hoping that he didn't have an answer. But the way that he looked at me told me that he had one. Well, because boys are known to be more of a rule breaker than girls. Plus, the kid that stole from her was male, so it makes sense. He said to me, hoping that I understood. And I did. So please, he added. When you get the list tomorrow, follow every rule from there. Even if some sound absurd or ridiculous, okay? He pleaded with me. Alright, fine. I will. Thank you. Now get to bed. It's getting pretty late. Your mom and I have a big surprise prepared for you. Said my dad while he kissed my forehead. Alright, thanks for telling me the history of the list. Good night, dad. Sleep well. He added as he was already closing the door of my room. Alright, now that you are caught up with everything, let me tell you the rules and which one that I broke. When I woke up the morning after that day, on my nightstand there was a yellow sheet of paper. The paper seemed old and dated, like it was from a book written hundreds of years ago. The edges of the paper had a wave-like model. The writing was red, and upon closer inspection, it seemed like dried blood. I decided to read it after I would eat breakfast, thinking better with my stomach full. 
when I went to the kitchen, my parents were already awaiting for me with freshly made pancakes, my favorite. As I sat down, my mother brought me my glass of milk and my dad spoke up. Did the rules appear? Appear, I said confused. Don't you guys write them? My parents looked at each other for a second and turned back to me. My mother continued. I'm afraid not, honey. The list just appears in your room when you turn 15. Well, that's weird. Yeah, said my dad. Did you read them? Not yet. Why? Gosh, put your fork down, said my dad. Still as serious as when I had entered the room. Jesus, now I can't even eat? I said annoyed. You can, continued my mom. But on the list of rules, there may be a routine before your breakfast. You have to be kidding me. I said as I threw my hands up. Wait here, I'll grab it for you, and you will read it with us. Said my dad, heading for my room. Great. I exclaimed ironically, more to myself. What happens if I don't follow the stupid rules? I asked more to myself, now becoming frustrated. But my mom heard me. Honey, we don't know, okay? We just want the best for you, and you know that. Yeah, whatever. As I finished saying this, my dad came back. Here, now read it. Okay, okay, God. Rule number one. Before you leave the house, open all the windows and leave them open until you come home. No matter how cold outside it is or who lives with you. Rule number two. Throughout the day, you will hear people calling you. Do not turn to the sounds. But if you do, run in a building and stay there for five minutes. And then leave in hurry to the place that you want to get to. Rule number three. At exactly 2 p.m., go on the street and toss a coin to the old man sitting in the corner. He will always be there waiting for you. After you toss him the coin, just turn around and leave. Do not talk to him. Rule number four. If in the middle of the day the sun shines a bright say, Oh Lord, thank you for the light. Rule number five. Make sure that you get home before 8 p.m. When you enter the house, there might be a strange smell. If there is one, go to the bathroom fast and say to the mirror, You are not welcomed. Leave. And after, make sure to close the windows as quickly as you can. If the smell is not present, then just close the windows. Rule number six. Do not eat anything after 9 p.m. And you are only allowed to drink tap water from that hour until 7 a.m. Rule number seven. If you wake up at any time during the night, and in the corner of your room there is a shadow darker than the night, close your eyes tight and don't move. It knows if you watch him. Stay like this until you feel the presence left, and then go back to sleep. Rule number eight. When you wake up in the morning, make sure that there is nothing out of place in your room. And if there is, make sure that you fix it before you do anything else. Is that it? Asked my dad. Yes, this is all there is. Strange. Usually members of this family get ten rules each. Well, maybe, I don't know. The curse is fading. 
Yeah, maybe, said my dad. Now go to your room and look if anything is out of place. Oh, yeah, right. I'll be back. I went to my room to check for anything strange. I checked in detail, but there was nothing disturbed. So I returned to the kitchen. Anything out of place, honey? Asked my mom, sounding a little worried. Nope, everything is fine, I said, satisfied that I could finally eat my breakfast. After I ate my breakfast, my parents called me in the living room. As we said, buddy, your mom and I got you a gift, said my dad, motioning for me to follow them. As I came closer to the gift, I saw it was a pretty big box. I grabbed it and shook it to see if anything moved and to see if it was heavy. The box wasn't that heavy, but it definitely had something big in it. Well, are you going to open it or just keep shaking until you make it a milkshake? Said my dad with a chuckle. I opened the box and what I saw inside brightened up my whole day, forgetting a second about the rules. Inside the box was the console that I'd wanted since I was 10. A new Xbox, along with some games for it. I put the box to the ground and went to hug my parents tightly and thank them deeply. Now don't get ahead of yourself. You can play it until after your homework and learning is done, and only until 10pm. That's no problem for me, I said still very happy. Now honey, added my mom, you should be heading to school so you won't be late. Yeah I should. I continued as I went to grab my backpack. Man buddy. Yelled dad for me. Grab the list too, so you make sure that you don't break the rules. Got it dad, thanks. Since that day up until now, I had followed the rules like they were the bible. Each day making sure that I didn't break one. Well, that changed a week ago when I finally decided to buy a house and move out. I had been saving money since I was 16. Working jobs where I could. The house was pretty far away from my parents, but it was close to the university that I got accepted in. So, I said my final goodbyes, got in my car and drove to my new house. It wasn't long before I broke a rule. After I got everything bought, bed, utensils, and the rest of the furniture. Of course, I didn't forget to buy a nice mirror for the bathroom in case the smell comes around. I have done this in a total of a month. Right after this, I broke the window rule. Let me explain. I woke up one morning to find out that I had slept more than I should have. I was supposed to get up at 7am but I slept at 8am and my shift started at 8.30. I got back, checked for any anomalies in my room and I went to eat. After I ate, I washed myself and got dressed. In my haze, I had forgotten to open the windows. My day at work was weird to say the least. Out of the edges of my vision, I could see shadows dancing in a ritual-like way. But when I turned to face them, they were just the boring normal world. No shadows except for the ones of imminent objects and people. But it got weirder. Remember the, if you hear sounds, blah 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 rule. Well, I never heard any until this day. And worse is, is that where they were coming from, these shadows who lived on the edges of my eyes. They were faint but raspy whispers, some that I could understand. Come here, don't be afraid. And embrace us, come on now, nothing to be afraid of. But others sounded like random mumbles. 
I thought that I was going to go insane. The shadows danced more alarmed and the whispers became plenty the more that I went through the day. One specific one caught my eye. You should have opened your window. I began whispering to myself. What? What does? As I go halfway through the sentence, it clicked. In my morning haze and sleepiness, I forgot to open the windows. I needed to get home. Maybe if I opened them now, it would fix the problem. I'm lucky my boss and I got along well and he let me off early. I got home and when I entered my house, I couldn't believe it. My furniture was turned upside down. Some glasses were on the floor, sitting there broken in hundreds of tiny pieces like a puzzle. Heck, my whole life had become a puzzle. I didn't bother cleaning up the mess. I went and opened up all the windows and no, there was a no smell this time. How lucky am I, right? But the whispers never stopped. Even as I'm writing this, they won't stop. And the things they say to me make me question insanity. Sometimes, they begin yelling, It's your fault, it's all your fault, over and over again. Once, I broke down and said, Just shut up, shut up. And they stopped for a second. And then they started laughing hysterically and maniacally. I couldn't sleep. I became more tired and started drinking. This all began last week as I said above. I picked the drinking up a few days ago. But they are still going. Please. If someone knows what's going on. Please help me. Please. I was inducted into a cult that worships memes. Written by Weird Bryce Guy. I've recently come to believe that the differences between generations aren't rooted in the issue of a familiarity with technology or a lack thereof. Plenty of older adults have comfortably adapted to the advances in communications technology. Since human technology has obviously advanced along a logical, mostly consistent pathways. Anyone familiar with one iteration of a device, concept, or system would, with practice, be able to familiarize themselves with its successors. The smartphone, though radically different from a standard landline of the late 90s, is in essence still a phone. And all the bells and whistles can be ignored or minimized so that the fundamental purpose, communication, can be utilized. The average person, regardless of generation, probably couldn't explain the technical aspects of the device that they use. Anyway, regardless of how well they would come to understand its superficial operation. People often joke about how if you were to travel back in time with a smartphone or a handgun, or any other tool or device which we were contemporarily familiar with, you could rise to some sort of high status or intellectual prominence. But this is extremely unlikely. If you were to bring a smartphone back to the Middle Ages, you would be ordered to explain how the device functioned. If you weren't immediately deemed a sorcerer and executed or imprisoned, and of course, the average person couldn't begin to explain that, or even simplify the technical processes behind the phone's operation. You have in your hand a device which can essentially transmit thought after you've spoken or typed it. 
across vast expanses immediately, ferried along by visually invisible signals. If you could even vocally communicate with people of a former time, there is nothing you could say in layman's terms that wouldn't be interpreted as magic. This rather protracted explanation is important to the story that I have to tell, because I need you to understand the absurdity of the situation that I encountered, and, of course, the morbid gravity of the situation. Anyone, given proper instruction or time, can come to understand anything, however strange or preternatural it may seem. While hanging out with my friend, we were approached by a group of people who must have been watching us. I say this because my friend had been showing me a meme on his phone while we ate in the outside dining patio of a burrito shop, and the group that approached us had said, So, you guys like memes? Now my friend and I aren't the kind of people who openly talk about memes, as if there's some kind of special knowledge discussed with an esoteric club. I'm asking someone, at least these days, if they like memes, is pretty much the conversational equivalent of asking, Hey, do you like jokes? Everyone likes jokes of some sort. Another equally odd way to ask would have been, Do you have the capacity to find things humorous? It was an absurd question, if you thought about it for more than a few seconds, and we answered accordingly. I responded that, Yes, we like memes, with no attempt to mask the decision in my tone. But the group, comprised of two men and one woman, all dressed as if they had just left Sunday morning service, didn't take offense to it, and immediately offered a follow-up question. What would you say is the most obsolete form of communication? Again, it was an odd question, and I didn't immediately know how to respond. My friend with a mouthful of burrito mumbled out, I don't know, and I nodded along, unable to come up with an answer myself. The group exchanged quick glances, though I couldn't discern the meaning behind them. The woman who had been standing behind the two men approached and sat at the table, directly across from me. She looked into my eyes, and I saw something in her gaze that unsettled me. A sort of simmering mania. An instability of the mind kept in check only to appease social norms. After a few moments of staring, during which I uncomfortably held her gaze, she looks back to her companions and nodded in confirmation of something. They looked to each other, nodded, and turned back to my friend and I. Without warning, the woman then took my hand while looking deeply into my eyes and said, Original human thought is incredibly inefficient. Ideating, conceptualizing, methodizing. It's also computationally slow. Sure, it may seem fast. You can carry out a conversation, even one of substance, without laboring over the formation of words. But it could be so much faster. So much more information could be shared through other means. For example, entire concepts, contexts, and layers of thought could be imparted by a single, properly constructed image. You're talking about memes. The woman smiled and her grip on my hand tightened. It was warm, 
and I felt the vitality of her life pulse through it. Ordinarily, I would have been freaked out and might have drawn my hand away. But despite the barely inhibited craziness in her eyes, I felt oddly comforted by the physical contact. Enchanted almost. She was fairly ordinary in appearance. I would even go as far as calling her unremarkable. Not ugly, but not someone you would look twice at. So I know that I wasn't enthralled by her looks, at least. Yes, exactly right. Memes, as you two have undoubtedly come to know in your experiences on the internet, can express a great deal of information, or references to information, with only an image. A meme may include a picture that's distorted, filtered, and edited in a way to appear similar to another picture, or incorporate elements of another picture. And from those simple modifications, you have something that would take several sentences to explain to someone. Unfortunately, memes so far in the public sphere have been used only for mundane, terrestrial humor. While there's nothing inherently wrong with that, memes could be utilized for much greater, wider-spanning purposes. Still holding my hand with one of hers, she motioned with the other, and one of the men removed a picture from his pocket and placed it on the table. Automatically, I moved my food aside, forgetting my hunger as if the warmth which had spread from the woman's body to mind had also sated me. My friend, who had finished his food, turned the picture around, and after studying it for a few seconds said, I don't get it. The woman nodded almost solemnly and then slid the picture over to me. She stared at me with anticipation, as if hoping or confidently suspecting that I would have better luck than my friend. I brought the picture in front of me, and immediately understood my friend's inability to comprehend the image. It was bizarre, definitely multi-layered in terms of meanings and ideas. I couldn't focus on a single object. Everything was distorted, warped, or proportionally exaggerated to become virtually indistinguishable from the background. It was as if a series of random objects had been fed to an AI and the AI had been instructed to artificially produce a work of art, an incredibly abstract piece of art. As if sensing my struggle with reconciling the image into something understandable, the woman's grip tightened, and I felt another surge of warmth. This time, it was almost electrifying. My mind, as if it had been previously beset by a fog, suddenly cleared, my thoughts no longer beleaguered by some undetected impediment. On the piece of paper, the image suddenly began shifting, or rather, my perception of its chaos changed. My mind started to make sense of what had just moments ago seemed random and disordered. Without prior knowledge, I came to understand aspects of the image, and once I had fully understood these, the overall message, the thing to get, finally came to me and I couldn't help but chuckle. It was a joke of sorts, a bit of black humor, but certainly not something you would see made by any human. I can't begin to put a description of the image into words. You'd have to see it for yourself, and labor over the reconciliation of the visual chaos just as I had. All I can say is that the image, the joke, 
was made at mankind's expense, thought of by entities well beyond us. This meme, despite how absurd it may sound, was an example of not just interspecies contact, but cross-cosmic contact. It wasn't until I had been given the ability to fathom the bizarre arrangement that I realized the extragalactic, ultra-terrestrial nature of the picture. I was floored. My mind was suddenly filled with the profound existential implications. The woman released my hand, folded the picture and handed it back to her male companion and then stood up. It was a clear day. There were people around and we had been sitting in a public space. And yet in that moment, I felt totally alone. Even separate from these strangers who had introduced the picture and its awful meaning into my life. The group of strangers asked if I would like to come with them and for some reason I agreed. My friend protested, but I ignored his words and followed the group mindlessly, trailing behind them while the world around me appeared to grow dim and insubstantial. I followed them to a van and climbed in once space had been made to accommodate me. The last thing I saw of that area was my friend standing on the curb, mouth agape, with his phone in his hand. I dully sensed the vibration of my phone in my pocket, but ignored the call. Beside me, one man stared ahead, and the woman drove casually along. The other man sat in the front beside her and had withdrawn the image from his pocket. He studied it, as if mesmerized. His head tottered without restraint. His shoulders rose and fell in accordance with the deep breaths. We drove for maybe 20 minutes, before turning into a residential neighborhood. Eventually, we arrived at a house. It was normal, not a ramshackle hut, nor an ominous-looking compound, as you might expect the meeting place of a cult to be. The exterior of the house was perfectly unimposing, an ordinary suburban home. We filed in through the front door, leaving the van parked in the driveway. There was no one else outside, although many cars sat in driveways or along the street. But once inside, the circumstances you would expect to find in a call-related environment were abundantly present. Documents, images, and other papers spanned every surface. Some stapled or taped together to form great and ugly tapestries upon the walls. I saw images that looked similar to the one that I had been shown, either in respect to the superficially disordered arrangement or the veritable aura of cosmic suggestion imbued within. Strange, morphologically unrecognizable idols sat atop shelves. Even larger ones were seated like sinister-looking dolls and chairs. These idols, which were presumably physical representations of figures within the images, were all at the very least eerie. Some were actually quite shocking, affronts to my very human sensibilities. The group let me take in the weird and disturbing sights, possibly thinking that I'd be mesmerized by them before leading me into another room. Before we entered, the man who had been studying the picture taped it to a wall that contained many similar images, parting from the picture with extreme reluctance. This next room was a sort of den, and a dim red light seemed to radiate from the very walls, 
giving everything a disturbing crimson tinge. I saw no other sources of illumination. There were other people in this room, and all were reverently prostrate before larger images that resembled paintings. The four massive canvases on easels were lined against the rearmost wall, each bearing an image of a visually assaulting nature. While these smaller pictures of the previous room could be looked upon with only slight discomfort, as your brain had tried to make sense of them, these pictures were almost obscene in their effects of confusion, distorted beyond tolerance, violently confounding. A vague yet potent dread began to form in my heart. The group that had brought me to the home went and assumed the position of the other attendees, and the woman beckoned me to join them. Even from the distance at which I stood, I felt a powerful presence within the paintings, or a force or element that resonated from them. I couldn't bring myself to move closer, but I nonetheless knelt where I had been standing. I didn't do this because I felt any spiritual urge to submit to those awful images, but because of the look I had seen in the woman's eye before, that barely contained mania, had finally been set free. There was uninhibited insanity in those eyes. Her gaze, though probably unintentionally malicious, made my skin crawl, and the primal alarms in my brain began to go off. I just didn't want to provoke her in any way. Once I had knelt with head bowed almost to the ground, the worship began. The people all uttered some ululating chant, which I couldn't have hoped to repeat and can't even begin to properly transcribe. They did this for nearly a minute, and then spoke in a language that might have been Latin, or possibly even older. I couldn't tell. Next, a command was shouted by the woman, and I heard the rustle of clothing. Peeking up, I saw that they had raised their heads, and so I did the same, but they had placed their hands over their faces, shielding them from viewing the paintings before them. Seeing as how I wasn't informed of any of these strange rites beforehand, I didn't think I would be chastised about my failure to follow along. Utterly freaked out, I watched them conduct another choral chant and finally remove their hands from their faces. And to my horror, they all started maniacally laughing at the pictures before them. The laughter was deep, blackly sincere. This was no performance or aspect of some ritual. They earnestly found great humor in those abysmal images. I felt sick, physically and psychologically, as I witnessed the convulsive movements of their bodies, the abrasive cacophony of their combined cackling. But what drove me from the house, what has plagued me with the most awful and infernal nightmare since, wasn't the laughter itself. It was when the woman turned back to me, and I saw that her face had started to melt. And yet, despite the agony she must have been feeling in that moment, she had continued to laugh, splattering the ground with molten flesh. The others too had started to undergo a similar disintegration. The gray carpet beneath them was soon coated in the gruesome drippings. An eyeball, partially liquefied, rested atop a pool of a skin-colored slime, blindly peering at me. With my eyes closed and hands thrown out to feel my way around, I fled from that awful house, 
and those cosmically caustic images. I discovered a Civil War veteran's last written note. It's the most disturbing thing I have ever read. Written by Clarkinator69. While doing historical research recently, I came upon the following primary document. The last words of a mentally traumatized and ruined Confederate veteran. That in and of itself sounds unremarkable, but the contents of the note, if genuine, are remarkable. The veteran set out for a life of rugged individualism into the wilderness, only to face terror even greater than the war. The note weaves an incredible and repugnant tale of murder, extremism, extraterrestrial life, and too many other atrocities to enumerate here. Tempting as it is to write it off as a fabrication, I have reason to believe it has verisimilitude. Without further ado, here is the note. I swear I am not insane. I am wholly rational and I am speaking the truth. My name is Byron Lewis and I was born in 1840, fought in the Civil War for the South, and have resided in this city for the last decade. It is now the year 1903. See, I am aware of reality. To whomever finds my lifeless body hanging from the ceiling, I am sorry that you had to see this. Accordingly, I will for the first time do something I thought I would never do. Commit to paper and share with another human being what I saw out in the Appalachian Mountains in the accursed years 1880 and 1881. It had been 15 years since the war, and my mind was still reeling. I thought I could escape the madness and restore my peace of mind with an autonomous life in the wilderness. Instead, I was thrust into a surreal and grotesque nightmare that I am still not wholly convinced was real. If the night terrors about the war ravaged my mind, then my current night terrors have scrambled it. I still remember my cabin vividly and the godly beauty of the mountains. I was certain I could convalesce there, but I also remember that vile reverend and that ghoulish doctor and the ghastly and cadaverous self-proclaimed prophet. And that's just scratching the surface of the horror. There were also the murders and the inhuman things. And the experiments. I guess I should take a few steps back and start from the beginning. From when it all went to hell. December, 1880. Life out there had hitherto been everything a man could ever hope for. Quiet, except for these sounds of nature. Clean. Fresh water from beautiful streams, teeming with fish and game. I was a long way from the battlefield now. Thank God Almighty. There is no glory or honor in war. That is nothing more than a lie to trick stupid young men into risking, and in many instances, sacrificing life and limb for the rich who never gave a damn about us. The Gentile plantation class used us to protect their perverse institution and so many went and buried themselves for it. I suppose I was more fortunate than many, 
my scarring was all in my head. And I genuinely do believe my mental scars were mending, and that I was on an upward trajectory. Granted, the dream still plagued my mind, but I was otherwise doing better. I feasted on an abundance of fresh fish and I hoped to hunt a deer soon. The scenery was beautiful and the sky clear. No hordes of people, no sick and dying beggars and no shouting. Nothing. Well, almost nothing. I had not seen a soul out there, but I had heard them. It was a cold winter night when I awoke from that most loathsome of reoccurring nightmares the one about that Union soldier. Of course, that nightmare pales in comparison to the ones that I have now. He was young, not a day older than myself, and I was just a man of 23 at Gettysburg, a poor kid in blue. He was a scared lad just like me. In a different life and a different world, we would have shared a drink in a tavern. But unfortunately, it was this life and this world it was him or me. I am still haunted by the memories of my bayonet spilling his crimson blood, of his howls of agony. It was all wrong. So wrong. But I must digress. I gasped and heaved in my bed, the sounds of the battlefield fading away, the screams and cannons and drums becoming faint and distant, until I realized that the drums hadn't stopped. I could hear drums that were very real, and not just fragments of a tortured memory. And there was chanting too, up in the mountains. I struggled to discern words, but to no avail. I do not even think that the language was English. I do not wish to know what language it is, nor did I wish to meet the speakers of this hideous tongue. Thankfully, they sounded far away and I easily went back to sleep after a few nips of whiskey. My thought I was possibly overreacting, as I was prone to do, but I still wished to have no contact with those folks. I had no reason to believe anything evil or malevolent was afoot, but it felt wrong. Why would there be rituals out here? Why would there be any large groups of people? Why would they speak a foreign language? Why would anyone other than myself have been out this far from civilization? I tried not to dwell on it, to convince myself they meant no harm to anyone, that it was just an enclave of folks like me, seeking repose in nature. How wrong I was. Even as evidence mounted that things were amiss, I remained determined to not leave my homestead. I should have followed my instinct. I apologize for the rambling and repetitious speech, but my nerves are gone. But things finally came to a head about a month after I had first heard the drums. All plausible deniability came crashing down. I was out hunting when I came across a small tent, sequestered amidst brush, as if the occupant was deliberately trying to hide. Inside, I could hear the muffled crying of a woman in great distress. Ma'am, is everything alright? I asked gently. It never occurred to me that I was likely being watched or in any sort of peril. Please go away. Leave me. She sobbed. I mean you no harm. I said gently. 
It is not safe here. Stop endangering me, she wailed. If there's danger, you should come with me, I offered. I was genuinely concerned and sympathetic for this young woman, inexplicably stranded out there. I would danger you, she said sadly. Let me accept my fate. Fate? I questioned. With resignation and realization that I was not leaving, she came out of her tent. I felt a deep pang of guilt and sorrow as I saw that she was very pregnant. Even worse, she didn't look a day over 20. I must have visibly winced, judging by her reaction. See? She asked pointedly. I'm in no shape for travel. My cabin's nearby, I offered. If you need food or anything. I would endanger you, sir, she interrupted. Get out of here before they find you. Who? I wondered if she was possibly referring to the people behind the drums and chanting. Those lunatics up in the mountains. Sick and crazy. Her voice was inflected with genuine terror. Look, I can help you. I started to offer, but she shook her head frantically. I sighed before offering her some berries that I had recently found. She hesitantly took them, and I offered to bring her more food the next day. She was both reluctant and thankful, and realized that I was determined to help. She acquiesced. Before reluctantly leaving, she still adamantly refused to go with me. I asked how she had ended up out there with such a rough group. Her story chilled me to the bone. I am only out here through sheer misfortune and desperation, she began. I was orphaned as a girl and my husband was killed on the job months ago. I found myself destitute and about to bring a child into the world. A child who will never know their father, she sobbed. I tried to console her, but she continued telling me her story. I was so desperate. I was out on the street. I had nothing. I had sworn to myself that I wouldn't be reduced to selling myself, but I had no choice. I had to abandon all pride. She was struggling not to cry now. I was in the town saloon about six months ago when I met a nicely dressed young man, one of those missionary types. He told me of a group of people who had what people such as myself needed, that they could provide food and shelter. I really didn't know what to believe anymore. What god would allow such tragedy to befall me and my unborn child? I don't know anything about that. I stopped being observant after the war. I offered, but she wasn't listening. She was talking on and on, almost to herself more than me. I accepted his offer. I was in dire need, and anything was better than what I was doing. I allowed him to take me out here, back to that den of murderers and fanatics. I knew almost right away I made a mistake. That sick reverend. She had to regain her composure at the mere mention of this figure. Disgusting old hog, she said of him. Bald, fat, and filthy, she shuddered. He told me that I had to do favors for him if I wanted shelter. I slept with the pig several times to stay alive. I was utterly revolted by now, 
and was beyond any words that I could offer in consolation. It was horrible, sharing a bed with him, listening to his awful sermons, the sounds coming from the caves, the beatings of disloyal members. I tried to keep my head down and survive, but I knew that I had to escape when I started to near childbirth. I was told that I was not allowed to raise my own child, because I'm not enlightened, I was not to be trusted with raising a child. An enlightened member would assume the role of parenting. That sick old man went so far as to say my child was the group's property. I stole some plies and ran off a few days ago. I had to. I... I started before trailing off. I had no idea what to say. If she was referring to the people that I had heard with the drums... I had been sleeping within earshot of some dangerous people. I need to get out of here, she said firmly. Please, there must be some way. You can't help me. Nothing can. Go. She pulled a small knife out of her pocket and waved it wildly at me. It was clearly she didn't trust me and would refuse my help. And furthermore, I had no desire to grapple with her. I simply raised my hands peacefully and walked away slowly. I still feel great guilt for that. Maybe I could have saved her from the horrible fate she met. But I could have never foreseen what happened next. I was awakened from my sleep that night by a woman's piercing, blood-curdling scream. Even through the walls of my cabin, it was deafening and horrifying. It was more than just a scream of fear and terror. Although such elements were present, but an agonized scream of pure pain. The screams rang through the darkness of the night until they stopped, likely signifying a merciful release from the suffering. But the perversity was just beginning, for as soon as the pain screams of agony stopped, I could hear another scream. The cries of a baby freshly ushered into this world. The woman must have gone into labor. I wanted to set out and look for her, but the wilderness was hardly a safe place while cloaked in darkness. I resolved to set out tomorrow morning. From the moment I set foot outside of my cabin, I knew the prospects of survival were dim for both the mother and the child. It was blisteringly cold, and it had started to snow at some point during the night. Rocked with guilt, I set out to where her campsite had been. I strained to listen as I marched through the snow-covered land, trying and failing to detect the sounds of an infant. I knew that meant nothing good. My worst fears were confirmed as I arrived at the campsite and was hit in the face by the stench of death. The first thing I saw was the poor woman's body, a sight forever etched into my mind. Copious amounts of crimson blood, now dry, stained the inside of the tent. I recoiled further as I took the rest of the sight in. Her face was contorted into an expression of pain and terror, and her abdomen was cut wide open. There was no sign of the infant. As my stomach lurched and I retched several times, other sinister clues entered the periphery of my vision. Footprints heading towards those mountains, deeper into the woods and further than I had ever ventured. 
And then there is an envelope labeled in bold lettering as a rite of judgment. With great fear and apprehension, I ignored the primal urge to run and open the envelope. I can still recall the contents verbatim, even more than two decades later. By the order of the reverend, acting in the divine power vested in him by the prophet, the subject of this rite is condemned to die for hearsay and theft from the commune. It is furthermore ordered that the stolen property be retrieved and returned to the headquarters of the Church of the Ephemeral World. It is so ordered on this December 26th, 1880. Jesus, I said as I threw the paper down, utterly repulsed. So many thoughts were whirling around in my head. Were those mountain folks the culprits? Did property refer to her child as I thought it did? Just what kind of evil men were out here? What kind of reverend was this? I spent little time pondering such questions, though as I was soon overtaken by an eerie and pervasive feeling that I was being watched. I had to get out of here and out of these woods. My homestead be damned. I made haste back to my cabin, praying as I had not prayed in years that the now rapidly falling snow would obscure my tracks. Much as I wanted to get out, I knew that I had to get supplies. I knew lack of preparation in the snow could be just as badly as those deranged madmen. As I made it back to my cabin, my face crusted with snow. I knew with a sinking heart that the storm was too strong to travel through. As much as I hated it, I knew that I would have to wait for it to pass before fleeing. I had a gnawing feeling in my stomach that I wouldn't make it unperturbed through the storm. I was right. Loath as I was to sleep, I knew that I would eventually need to get some shut-eye. I stayed fully clothed and kept my rifle on my lap, sleeping upright. I was determined to be ready for anything. I felt as if I was back in the battlefield that night. Except the terror was greatly exacerbated. Instead of facing the infantry and cavalry of the north, I was dealing with an unseen terror. I don't know when they came in, or how they even followed my trail in such a blizzard. But when I woke, I found the interior of the cabin illuminated by a lantern. A large bearded face could be seen beyond the light. I moved to defend myself, but was kicked in the stomach by another man as I tried to stand. Before I could do anything else, I was grabbed by each arm by two strong men. Minterloper. The man with the lantern snarled. I struggled to find the words to respond. You come here on our hallowed grounds, where we have searched for the truth for the past 15 years, and you ignore the truth. Maderick, he said in his ragged voice. The reverend wishes to speak with you. My blood ran cold. I hoped against all hope this wasn't the same reverend who had just had that poor woman murdered but I knew it was. Before I could process much else, I was struck in the head and knocked unconscious. I awoke locked in a small, freezing cold cabin. Outside, I could hear an assembled mass of people. I struggled to hear anything, but could make out the sounds of a sermon of sorts. No matter what those accursed heterics in town say, the truth will prevail. 
the voice said. We will spread the truth and spread our gospel throughout this ephemeral world. We will awaken people to the true nature of existence and being. The world will accept our teachings, if not by their own volition, then by force. The man was yelling fervently now. We fight for the true salvation. We fight for the rebirth of man. Look at me. I am 82 years old, but was an ignorant fool for 67 years. I am 15 years old as my reborn self. For years, I was in the gutter. I was cast aside by all. And then the prophet in his vision picked me out of the trash and saved me. This is the personal victory and enlightenment that we seek. We will win. We will alter this plane of life. All hail the truth. All hail the church. And all hail our prophet. The man finished. All hail the prophet. The crowd repeated. As soon as the speech had concluded, I heard the familiar sound of drums. I immediately recognized them, and immediately recognized these lunatics were the same people I had heard on those nights. I resigned myself to my doom, and accepted I was probably minutes or hours from death. It was hours later, with my stomach rumbling, that I was removed from my makeshift prison by three rough-looking men. I recognized one of them the largest of them, as the bearded man who had been holding the lantern in my cabin. They did not speak to me, only ushering me along. As they moved me, I took in my surroundings. I was in a small village up in the mountains. It was mostly very unimpressive, just a lot of poorly made cabins. Mine was probably better built. However, it seemed to be in the process of being improved. Based on the foundations that I could see, it seemed the group was in the process of building several stone houses. Also impressive was the massive crater in the center of the village, fenced off and labeled as a holy site. But most noticeable of all was the foreboding cave entrance situated at the back of the village, which is where the three men were taking me. As we moved through the village and closer to the cave, I was able to lay eyes upon some of the village's residents. Most looked as unremarkable as the shoddy cabins. Some sat and drank around a fire. Others were knelt in silent prayer. A couple of others were chopping firewood. One was skinning a deer. One thing that was noteworthy was the mixed nature of the crowd. And while most of the denizens were unremarkable, the armed men were quite a sight. Armed to the teeth with bandoliers and some strange sort of war paint on their faces. I wondered if any of them had been involved in killing that poor woman. As we approached the entrance of the cave, I noticed a small stage nearby. I correctly assumed that was where the reverend must have been giving his sermons from. My heart sank as I marched into the cave. Nothing good was going to happen in there, that much I was sure of. With my feet practically turned to stone, I was more dragged than walked into the depths of the cave. Despite the darkness of the cave, the lanterns in there did a reasonably good job of lighting the place. Vision was of no issue as I was marched into what turned out to be a network of caves. I was shoved roughly into one of them. 
and found myself looking into the piercing glare of an old man that I almost instantly recognized as the reverend. It had to be him. He was very old, very bald, and very fat, just as that woman had described him. He was truly a disgusting sight to behold. In addition to being grossly overweight and filthy, he was hobbled with a cane, fixed in an unsightly hunched posture. Moreover, his clothes were little more than tattered rags. I could tell that they had once been vestments, but their best days were behind them. Could he have actually been a reverend at one point in time? The trespasser, I presume. He asked calmly. I had no idea I was... I started to plead my case, but was cut off. That sounds like an admission of guilt. He said matter-of-factly before turning his attention to the large, bearded man. Silas, what is the status of the child that you recovered from the heteric? I was overcome with a new sense of revulsion, as I realized one of the perpetrators of that brutal murder was in my company. I should have listened to her and fled. It died last night. Wasn't strong enough. The man apparently named Silence said gruffly, Unfortunate, the reverend said without a hint of sorrow, but the heteric is to blame, and she has already paid the ultimate price. Now, what does the trespasser have to say for himself? Sir, I started to plead. I had no idea that this land was taken. I was only seeking refuge in nature. I had no intention of disturbing you. He regarded me in silence for a few moments before issuing his edict. Dispose of him, he said coldly. My heart began pounding rapidly and my legs shook. I was going to be killed. I begged. I fought against the men holding me, but to no avail. I was subdued and whisked out of the cave and marched back towards the exit. I began silently praying, something that I hadn't done in a long time. Just when all seemed lost, I received an unlikely reprieve. Lewis? A man's voice called out my last name. I turned my head as best as I could and I saw a thin, gray-haired man walking towards us. Stop. He called to the men dragging me. Stop, you idiots. What do you want now? Silas said in a vexed voice. The gray-haired man admonished him to watch his tone before turning his attention back to me. Byron Lewis, he asked. Yes, I answered weakly. I hadn't the faintest idea who this man was or how he knew me. Don't you recognize me, he asked. We were in the war together. I was one of the medics. I looked at him, dragging the depths of my cursed war memories before remembering if this was who I thought it was, I was looking at the medic who had deserted in the dead of the night to avoid being hung for murder. Samuel Gray, I asked. Yes, he affirmed before turning to the guards again. I need a helping hand in my laboratory. I will vouch for his character. Let him go. But Reverend Borden said, Silas protested. Does it sound like I care what he said? Gray cut him off sharply. I said I want Mr. Lewis with me. I silently prayed that Gray would win the argument. I still had no idea what this community was or what they believed. 
but I knew Gray was all that stood between myself and death. Before Silas could push back, Gray continued his push. Talking mouthpieces are replaceable. Carrington can find another preacher. Medical expertise is far more elusive. Silas processed Gray's words for several seconds, clearly enraged, before shoving me towards Gray. You're one lucky son of a gun. He spat before us, stalking off into the caves, grousing that he hadn't gotten to whip anyone to death for weeks. I had a thousand questions for my savior swirling in my head, but all I could muster at that moment was a thank you. It would soon be one that I wished to resent. My disgust would only grow as I realized just how twisted these people were, just how twisted Gray was. This latter point I learned the same night. So what exactly happened with you in the regiment? I asked Gray as I followed him through the dimly lit labyrinth. They were going to hang me, he said. I saw so many horrible injured and maimed men out there. Sometimes the killing is the ultimate mercy. I ended the suffering of those men with a large dose of dopamine. Leadership was none too keen when they learned of it. I was ambivalent about this revelation, I admit it. I do not necessarily think mercy killings are immoral. But then Gray kept talking, and I learned the depths of his depravity. The thrill was too much for me to hang up my hat, Gray continued. I loved being the decider, and continued putting the less fortunate out of their misery. The crippled and lame, the destitute, the beggars. But again, the law saw differently. I struggled to conceal my revulsion. I wanted to stay on Gray's good side. I tried to change the subject. So who is Carrington? I asked him. He is the great leader and prophet, Gray answered. He is the most enlightened man alive. He has discovered the true nature of existence and shares it with all. He brings man under one roof of wisdom. Rich and poor, city folk and country folk, white and black, northern and southern. He offers it to all. He picked me out of the gutter and resurrected me. I had lost everything, my profession, my livelihood. I was a husk of a man. Carrington made me whole again. He needed a man of science and medicine, and I needed a purpose in life. He heralded my rebirth, and that of many others here. That was a lot to take in, and I was a bit concerned at how worshipped he was, but I was also confused. What purpose did that reverend serve then? I asked about the reverend, prompting a sneer from Gray. He's an old fool, and one to soon outlive his purpose. The day will soon come when Carrington has no need for him, but for now, Carrington needs a mouthpiece. He was deeply harmed when he drank from the fountain of knowledge and feasted upon the wealth of erudition. Grace said with passion, He clearly knew a lot by heart, or at least his own positions and opinions on the church. Before I could ask anything else, we arrived at Grace's laboratory. Gray pulled back a makeshift curtain to reveal a large and cavernous section of the cave. Even with the lanterns, it was poorly lit. It was for the most part unremarkable but there was one incredible sight to behold. A dead creature preserved in a giant glass container. It was inhuman, twisted, and elongated, 
when I inquired about it. Gray told me that it had come crashing to earth in a screaming ball of metal and fire in 1865, where the sacred crater was. It had been discovered by Borden and Carrington, and the latter had consumed the creature's flesh and blood. It provided great knowledge and longevity, but at a tremendous physical cost. I decided to stop asking so many questions. I knew I was in a horrible situation, but I had to play along. I knew that if I were to survive and escape, I would have to bide my time and patiently wait for an opportunity to run for it. And bide my time I did, and I became awfully familiarized with the place and these people. Not everything was all bad. My quarters in the lab cavern were nice, nicer than what most got. There was a small room of sorts in the back of the laboratory, constructed with makeshift wooden frames and deer hides for a privacy barrier, with a bed and small chest inside. I also became familiar with the denizens, many of whom were polite and cordial. But I also became acquainted with the evil and sinister aspects that far outweighed the small good. I became familiar with those unsettling sermons from that decrepit Reverend Warden, and I became familiar with the fact that Silas was the law and order of the village, doling out beatings to others regularly, in addition to seeking and often receiving permission from Borden to inflict more than a mere beating. It soon became commonplace to see Silas flogging some poor soul who had incurred his wrath. And I eventually learned Silas's affinity for the whip was rooted in his past as an overseer before the war. The loathsome guy had found a place to continue his life's calling of inflicting pain. I also became aware of the fact that many of the community members were robbers and bandits, frequently attacking stagecoaches and caravans. The men they killed. I know this because their fresh corpses were brought back to the laboratory for Gray to experiment with. Those experiments still make me shudder. Worse still was the fate of the women that were nabbed in those robberies and raids. They were offered to board in his tribute, until he tired of them. After that, they were given to Silas, and they never lasted long after that. That man still makes me sick to my stomach, but I need to stop rambling and get back on track. Back to those wretched experiments that still haunt my mind. The very next day, in fact, Gray conducted one. That morning, a couple of men arrived in the laboratory and delivered the corpse of a freshly killed man. By the looks of his garments, he had been a wealthy man, almost certainly a stagecoach passenger. Gray wasted no time, sawing off the man's head with a sickening glee. As he did so, he explained he was trying to resurrect and reanimate the dead, specifically the brain. He also thought that the brain could connect with other realms of life potentially. He was removing the head, he said, to prevent resistance if the brain were to be fully restored. He placed the head on a table before fetching a syringe filled with a mysterious green liquid. He explained that he had been attempting to mix the blood of that inhuman creature with various medicines that a contact of his purchased from the pharmacist at the nearest town. And despite my strong disgust, I was still fixed at the sight as Gray injected the substance into the skull. Several seconds passed and then the impossible happened. The eyes and mouth popped open. The eyes still looked lifeless, but they were open and moving. And the mouth, it was opening and closing, 
as if tried to talk or exhale, but it had no lungs to exhale with. It felt like minutes but was likely just a few seconds before all movement stopped and the head became lifeless and still once more. Even I was completely stricken with awe and apprehension. Gray cursed the failure and slammed a fist in the table in frustration. He ranted about how there was no duration or sentience and that he had tried so many times. He proclaimed that a living subject was needed. Much as I wanted no part in it, I knew I would be the subject if I objected. I kept my mouth shut. It was several days later when I learned that Gray had obtained a living victim. A woman taken from the latest stagecoach raid. I also learned that Gray had only gotten his subject after a tremendous fight with Borden. Borden was infuriated at the loss of a tribute. But Gray had apparently gone to Carrington about it. I had not seen or heard of him yet. Gray had said I was not allowed to meet him. And the alleged prophet and reclusive leader had apparently ruled in Gray's favor. I still hate myself for taking part in this, even though I know I had no choice. It had been about two weeks since I had arrived that the experiment began on a freezing January night. She was strapped to a table, the same one that the head had been placed on. I felt enormous guilt and pity as I looked into her eyes, eyes filled with nothing but terror. Something about her eyes said she was a kind and charitable woman, the kind who could stand being married to a damaged soul such as myself. But I was always doomed to be a childless bachelor. Sometimes I still dream about killing Grey, rescuing her, escaping with her, and starting a life together. But it was not to be. Please let me go, she said to me. Please, mister, you look different than the other monsters here. Before I could begin to respond, I heard Grey approaching. Despite the rest, I muttered that I was sorry. I was and still am. This is a big day for science and humanity, Gray said cheerfully. You will be going where no other human has ever gone, miss. Hayes, she answered him fearfully. Right, Miss Hayes. You will be having an out-of-body experience. We are going to see the true power of the human mind. Dead brains have proven insufficient. Lewis, the syringe, Gray said with his typical air of confidence. I wordlessly handed it to him. I never understood what the concoction was, nor have I ever wished to. Hayes breathed rapidly as Gray injected the substance into a vein in her arm. He had explained earlier that he didn't want to puncture a living brain and sabotage the experiment. She cried out in anguish the instant the injection was made, and convulsed wildly against the restraints for several seconds before going still. I thought she was dead or unconscious, but then she began speaking. Is anyone there? She called out. We are here, Gray answered. Your body is still here. She didn't seem to hear us. Gray snapped his fingers over her head several times, but she did not respond. Suddenly, she let out a piercing scream. What are you? Somebody help, they're everywhere. She screamed over and over before going silent. And then she spoke again. Only it was no longer her. Or any human for that matter. Finally, a means for us to communicate. 
The roughened, scratchy voice said, Who are you? Gray asked with a great interest. We are the future. The supreme beings exiled from your earth long ago and relegated it to this realm. For time untold, we have watched, unable to interact. But you just opened the threshold. We have watched you fools and your feeble leader try to open up your realm of life so foolishly. Your ancestors, those who were gifted, sacrificed themselves to seal us off. And then your community came along. We are gods, fallen gods, and we will be worshipped once more. The merest sights of our true forms will. Before he could continue, Gray drove a large knife through the body's head. Lucky that he had the cognizance, as I had been fixated on the thing's monologue. Fortunately, destroying the brain seemed to work, for it fell silent. We need to control things better before doing anything else with that, Gray said with a ragged breath. The other realms will destroy us unless we use caution. We need to be able to observe these realms without fear of harming ourselves, or letting them in. I was relieved and surprised that Gray was prudent enough to know when to slow down. I had feared his fixation on science would have kept him going, but it didn't. But I knew this reprieve was ephemeral, and that these sick experiments would soon resume. Things were about to get so much worse. Not only were the experiments about to worsen, but the powder keg of tension between Gray and Borden was about to ignite. All hell was about to break loose. And all hell broke loose a little less than a month after that surreal and sickening experiment with that poor woman on February 10th, 1881. I can vividly remember the details of that day. Gray had been in a great mood since that morning, from the moment we had risen and eaten breakfast. He told me that today was the day. I would soon learn just what he was referencing. It was in the afternoon when Borden began delivering his sermon and I was quite surprised that Gray was attending. Usually he avoided them. Borden had barely started his speech when a garbled and distorted voice emanated from the mouth of the cave directly behind Borden. At last, the power of my voice is sufficient, the unseen speaker said. Carrington speaks. One of the men next to me gasped. Borden looked startled before regaining his composure. My prophet, he said, your voice. Yes, I can communicate directly with my commune now. The voice interrupted the decrepit reverend. I could see no source of the voice. I was a dumbstruck as to where he was. My, my lord, Borden stuttered, clearly awestruck, before being interrupted again. Your services will no longer be needed. Carrington said coldly. Borden looked as if he hadn't processed what was said, his arm and cane trembling. But, he began before again being cut off. I can address the commune now. You have outlived your purpose and I know you have been deviating from the sermons I dictated to you, trying to attain your own clout. What, did you think I could not hear your pathetic attempts to make this your church? I hear and know all. I am the voice of the truth, the bringer of enlightenment. 
You are a loser and drunkard who was cast aside and abandoned by your family and congregation. I made you. Were it not for me, you would have never extricated yourself from the trash. You would have drank yourself to death in the gutter, or been put out of your misery by someone such as a Dr. Gray. The voice castigated him. Kill him, Carrington said harshly. Borden's jaw dropped as he fell to his knees, pleading. I gave you all I had, he wheezed, struggling to hold back tears. I gave myself wholly to the cause. I've been by your side for 15 years. Carrington was unmoved. Then those 15 years have come to an end. Now kill him. I winced as the harsh shout grated my ears. Borden had begun blubbering now. As Silas and several others climbed onto the stage, most of the assembled worshippers were utterly shocked at the emergence of this development, with the notable exception of Gray, who was smiling broadly. Now I knew why he had been so cheerful, so eager for today's sermon. Even as a newcomer, it was evident that there was a lot of animosity between Borden and Gray, and that both had been engaged in a power struggle to be the right-hand man. With this, it was apparent Gray had won. As the men converged on Borden, he began praying, praying the Christian prayer. Carrington laughed cruelly at this. You have shown your true form as a turncoat and Hederick in your final moments. You shall be forsaken by your God as well. If your gospel of Christ is true, and it is not, you are still hellbound. You have orchestrated murders on your own accord, ones I did not order. You have defiled women and cultivated a harem. You indulged in your liquor. You are a heteric who has been cast aside by Two-Face. Carrington mocked vituperatedly. As Carrington finished this line, Silas was on Borden, grabbing him by his vestments and throwing him off the stage. Borden landed at a perverse angle with a sickening crack and cry of agony likely having shattered his leg or hab. He merely laid on the ground, a pathetic, blubbering mess, struggling to recite the Lord's Prayer as Silas walked towards his writhing form and cut his throat. Borden made a sickening, gurgling sound and took several ragged breaths as his blood stained the ground, going still after what seemed like an eternity. I had never taken pleasure in watching a man die before the few men needed killing as much as Reverend Borden. I'm not ashamed to admit that I took some joy in what I saw, although not clearly as much as Gray did. But I soon learned that the devil you don't know is worse. Under Carrington's direct leadership, the horror of this walking nightmare intensified. Even though he had been a deranged fanatic, Borden had at least given members privacy and allowed people to sometimes neglect their attendance. This was no longer the case. Attendance became compulsory with Carrington at the helm. And that animal Silas was more powerful than ever. Formerly the unofficial sheriff of the village, he officially became the head enforcer, freely inflicting pain at the slightest whim. And it was clear that Gray's experiments were going to be worse than ever. Gray had long wanted to perform an experiment on an expecting test subject, but had been unable to do so. His most recent attempt had been stonewalled by Borden, 
refusing to hand over that young woman that I had encountered. But one of Borden's other tributes had recently been impregnated by the late Reverend himself. And now, uh, there was nothing to stop Gray from performing his test. I was sicker than ever before as Gray explained his plan with ghoulish fervor, stating his intentions to alter the unborn child. To this end, he planned to feed the woman a part of that alien creature preserved in the laboratory. It was all so sick. I could not stand by and be a part of this anymore. I was sacrificing my soul to keep my mortal husk alive, and that is a poor trade. I knew my chances of escape were dismal, so I resolved to do some good, and then escape or die trying. It was a little over a week since Borden had been killed when I made a move. It was the evening, and I was sitting in the laboratory with Gray. He was barely paying mind to anyone, simply smoking his pipe, seemingly deep in thought. This was as good a time as any. My eyes drifted to the pistol on the table, Gray's pistol that he had left there. I had to act fast before I lost my guts. It was time for Gray to be punished for his evil. I grabbed the pistol and shot Gray in the chest. He barely had time to react. His jaw went slack, and his pipe clattered on the cave floor. At about the same time, he slumped forward slightly in his chair, laying there lifeless. I had never derived anything other than guilt or remorse from killing a man, but I felt pride that Gray had faced justice for his acts of untold cruelty. But there was no time to celebrate. I had to move if I was to avoid capture. I slipped out of the laboratory, preparing to make my way towards the exit. But then I heard the hurried footsteps coming from the direction I wanted to go in. I silently swore before backtracking, crouching behind some stalagmites and hoping I wouldn't be seen. A few tense seconds had passed when two men came into view, stopping outside of the laboratory curtain. Is everything alright in there? One of the men called out. We heard a gunshot. They received a chorus and no response. After a few seconds, they pulled back the curtain and entered. I took the opportunity to slink away. I knew it was too risky to pass the lab and head straight to the front of the cave, so I retreated further into the cave. As I made my way towards the back, praying for an exit to exist, I heard these surprised screams and curses from those two men in the lab. With Gray's murder known, I really needed to move. I crept silently through a passage that I had not previously traversed, finding myself at the entrance of a room. I pulled back the curtain and crept in, not sure of what I would find. At first, nothing. And then I saw the bed. I heard the raspy breathing. And then the voice... The interloper who has betrayed Dr. Gray's trust and benevolence. I recognized that hideous voice. It was Carrington. I raised my gun and cautiously approached the bed, but the seemingly bedridden man did not react. As I stood over his bedside, I took in his features, at least what I could see of him. He was covered from neck to toe with a blanket, with only his head visible. He looked more like a cadaver than a living man, 
with his sunken eyes and skin stretched over a thin face and hollow cheeks. His white hair looked brittle, and his brown eyes murky. Never before had one man been such a ghastly sight. And then he spoke. His lips didn't move, but he spoke. You will pay for your defilements of our sacred order. Gray's murder will be punished with death. Even if you kill me, the truth will prevail. I was frozen in shock for several seconds, my arms seemingly weighing a ton. But I regained my mobility and raised my arms, my pistol aimed for directly between the desiccated prophet's eyes, and I pulled the trigger. And justice would have been served to this fiend, except my gun had jammed. I swore violently before turning to flee, but at that time, the curtain to the room was ripped open. Armed men barged in, aiming their weapons at me. I'm ashamed to say that I folded. I dropped my gun and surrendered. I did not want to die like that, and so I allowed myself to be taken prisoner. I am still slightly surprised that I was not shot down then and there, but I was not. I was, however, severely beaten as I was marched back to the same cabin I had been held captive in when I first arrived. It was a hell of a night, spitting out blood and teeth as I struggled to lay in a position that didn't exacerbate my welts and bruises. I didn't sleep until full exhaustion overtook me. I awoke later in the day to hear the sounds of a ceremony, yet it was not a sermon. I cautiously stumbled to the door and looked through. Outside, a funeral for Gray was underway. Carrington, unseen as ever, was eulogizing him as six men carried Gray's corpse on a plank of wood. A small procession of men followed, bearing torches. The rest of the members stood to the side, praying some unholy and perverse prayer. As the procession reached the center of the village, Gray's body was laid on a crude pyre and the torchbearers set fire to the assembled pile of wood. Few smells are offensive as burning flesh, and I did my best to avoid any areas of ventilation, but it was of little use. All day, I gagged at the repugnant odor. All day, I made peace with my impending death. I prayed and thought back on my life, and what I should have done differently, and I cried and tried to assure myself that heaven awaited, that I would be spared from the lake of fire, despite me being complicit in the atrocities of the church. The hours ticked by like years, and I was finally fetched from the cabin the next morning, and to my bewilderment, marched to the village entrance. Nine other prisoners were there, doomed to a mass execution because of their suspected loyalty to Borden. Carrington had ordered their deaths to prevent a possible power struggle, and I was thrown in with them for the sake of convenience. The deaths were to be handed down outside of the encampment to lower the risk of further division. And so, we were marched into the wilderness before the rest of the village had risen from their beds. Silas and several others marched us for miles until we reached a large clearing, and we were ordered to stand side by side. I silently prayed as the volley of gunshots rang out. 
It was by some providential miracle, I'm sure, that my executioner missed. But with the man next to me falling on the ground, in my uncanny presence of mind to fall to the ground and play dead, nobody noticed the miss. And so I laid still, hoping against all hope that the men would leave and not bury us. I waited at an agonizingly slow pace as one man lingered to smoke. Finally, the last man left, and after waiting a few more minutes out of caution, I got up, picked up a knife one of the men must have dropped and fled. I did not have my bearings, but thought I could still find my way out eventually. It was right after I had left the clearing that I heard two men enter it, apparently looking for the knife that I had just taken. I'm sure we'll find it, one man said timidly. We had better... The other man said menacingly. My heart sank as I realized it was Silas. The knife was my grandfather's, he said. I've cut so many throats with it. Killed too many hatteracks to lose it. I cut that heretical girl open with it. I killed that pompous reverend with it. Drew the blood of many on those plantations with it. I nearly wretched and felt the urge to throw that sinister instrument of death from my hand at this sordid revelation. I crouched and remained still, hoping the men would leave without noticing me or my escape. But it would not be so simple. Silas, the man said hesitantly, I thought we marched ten men out here. We did, was his gruff reply. I swore in my head as I heard Silas counting the bodies. The interloper, he exclaimed, before turning his attention to the other man. Apparently, he had been tasked with shooting me. Despite his pleas and apologies, Silas shot him. I will find you, you coward, Silas said dodgily before exiting the clearing. I exhaled, having apparently held my breath. I needed to get away fast, and despite my disgust, I knew that Silas's knife was my only defense. It was a tense day, navigating the inhospitable brush. Of course, it helped none that I was terribly hungry, and that it was terribly cold and windy. Finally, there was a glimmer of hope as I came upon a stream. If this was the same stream that I had built my cabin near, then the nearest town was upstream. It was my only piece of knowledge to go by, so I walked along the stream. My hope and bliss were shattered by heavy footsteps and by a blinding force hitting me in the side. I was an eye to the ground, right on the stream bank, my knife hitting the ground. Before I could get up, Silas was on top of me, strangling me. I've wanted to do this for a long time. He snarled, his face purple with rage. I was looking into the eyes of pure evil. I vainly threw my left hand against his face, but to no avail. My vision blurred and my lungs screamed. I desperately threw my right arm around, hoping I could reach the knife that I had dropped. My heart leapt as I felt my hand grip the handle. No time to aim, just one chance. I threw my arm in a wild arc and connected with Silas's neck. I felt his grip around my neck slacken, and his eyes went wide in surprise. 
He gurgled as blood ran out, streaking his beard. As my breath regained, I threw my knee into his stomach. He rolled off me and into the stream. I gasped for breath as I stood up, looking with satisfaction as his lifeless body drifted downstream, a tide of crimson blood painting the previously clear stream. Never before had I taken such joy in a death. Some small measure of justice had been delivered for that poor woman, for all the poor souls he had tormented and killed. Even more satisfying was the poetic justice that he had met his end with the same knife he had ended so many others with. But I had no time to joyce or revel. If I didn't get to town soon, I would have perished from the elements and starvation. And so I plotted on. I remember making it to the town and collapsing in the street. My next memory was waking up in a bed and seeing a kindly old woman at my bedside. Apparently, somebody had taken me to the town reverend, and he and his wife had been willing to help. I shuddered at the idea of a reverend, but this was a real man of God, the antithesis of Borden. They nursed me back to health despite my repeated warnings that I had no money. I genuinely thanked both as I left town. And I'm not proud of this. Stole a horse. I rolled up into northern Pennsylvania and stayed there for a few years, before heading further north and west up into Michigan, where I have lived ever since. I have struggled physically and mentally and have contemplated ending it all many a time. But today is the day. I saw a missionary in town today, and we locked eyes. I recognized him as one of the men from that cave, and he clearly recognized me. Maybe they won't bother to pursue me, but they seem the type to tie up loose ends, and I can't let them take me back to the caves. And goodbye. Well guys, I wish to write this off as a hoax, but my research has shown that there was a man named Byron Lewis born in 1840 who fought in the Confederacy and died in Michigan in 1903. I am halting all research into this, as I wish to learn no more, but it seems too much to be a coincidence.